All right, this week we have Chad Denena, the founder of Nixon Watches. It is a great episode, lots to learn from Chad, lots of laughter. Before we get into that, though, we got to talk about a couple things. What about new merch, buds? We got those corduroy hats back in. The, the burgundy one was a go, but now we got the black and yellow. Woof! Be get sure, that. Be sure to check out Bombhole Racing hoodies. We got Bombhole Cup hoodies. We got Bombhole Cup tees. We got new sticker packs. All kinds of merch available at bombhole.com. We also have Bombhole Cup coming up April 2nd and 3rd. I know the bank slalom is pretty much full, but come and hang out. We're going to have food from Traeger. We're going to have all kinds of great giveaways. It's going to be a good time. People are going to be hammering brewskis. <laughs> Justin Benny's going to be DJing. Todd Richards is going to be up there announcing. Jayco E's going to be in the event. And, you know, if you didn't get into the race, there is a uh, no-show list going. So, Godspeed on that. If someone doesn't show up, you can still get in that way. But just come up either way and hang. It's going to be a good time. Again, April 2nd and 3rd at Brighton. Do not miss it. And lastly, before we get into this, uh, we have some new stuff on our YouTube channel. We got these banter reports that we've been doing. So be sure to subscribe to our YouTube. Also, if you're listening to this on any listening platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you do not miss any episodes. But with that being said, let's get into the Chad Denena episode. Here we go. You are listening to the Bomb Hole. Bomb Podcast. It's going to be very hot. It's going to be very uncomfortable for everybody. The Bomb Gonna slide down in big hills. You know what I mean? On a big, nice burgundy snowboard. Okay, here we go again. We're back in the booth here at the Bomb Hole, which is presented by Pub Beer. Now, first things first, as always, I got to ask, buds, how we doing? So good, my dog. Love that. Always love that. Now, to my left, we have Chad Denena. Chad, how we doing? So good, my dog. <laughs> <laughs> love it. So for our listeners that are unfamiliar with Chad, uh, basically, he's done a lot of incredible things in this industry, but he's most infamously known for being the founder of Nixon Watches, which has had a huge, huge impact on action sports and and just in general, and uh, done a lot of great things in his career. We're going to cover everything. But first things first, I just want to start by kind of picking your brain about the fact that you've kind of always been an entrepreneur from a young age. You've always had it in your blood, right? Yes, I was the kid that was had a full-time job at 12 and 13 years old, starting off at the pizza place, going into your paper route, and you know, take it from there, Baskin-Robbins, Target, Kmart, I've held a lot of jobs before I even got out of high school. Mm -hmm. And then uh, going back, talking about making, I know we're jumping way ahead, but uh, even even in the early days making watch clasps, right? Yeah, working in the shop, in a, in a snowboard shop early in high school, I would make watch bands. So what I would do, we sell wetsuits in the stores. And when you're working in a shop, you have a lot of downtime. So I'd walk down the aisle and with wetsuits, you'd get an extra piece of neoprene to cover the, cover the knees that you might make a hole in your knee. I'd rip all those extra pieces off and cut them, staple the ends together, electric tape them, and put them in a bowl. And I'd sell them at the shop for extra cash. And I was just always into watches. So that's what really kind of started my fascination with it. The shop uh, owner was cool with that? Super cool with nice. it. Nice. Yeah, if you got a shop owner that's not cool with anything. Yeah, that's then, a problem, huh? Yeah, you don't want to be there. Mm -hmm. Well, as you just mentioned, you know, talking about surfing, you're you're originally from Southern California, right? I was born in Connecticut. Oh, really? Okay. But moved out when I was a year old. Okay. 
And so, yeah, I, I like to claim Southern California, but if you go to my birth certificate, there might be some factual inconsistencies. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, going back to California, I, I think it would be fascinating to talk about the early days of snowboarding when you look at you know, uh, Big Bear and, and I guess it was Summit maybe at the time, but Absolutely. late, was it late eighties? What, what was the, what, what was the kind of uh, landscape of snowboarding back then? Well, there was a lot of skiers and a few snowboarders, right? And, um, that first time going up on the hill, working in the shop, there was not enough seats in the truck and I still wanted to go so bad and there was no shell on the truck, but I just laid down for that hour and a half drive up and back from the hill. And, I mean, it was great because nobody was great at it. Everyone was kind of coming up together. So when someone would learn a trick in the morning, by the afternoon, maybe two or three other people were already trying that. So progression was quick. Community was strong. And um, it didn't matter if you didn't know the person next to you. By the end of the lift, you were friends for life. And that was a, that was a great time growing up in that and having that community and that like-mindedness amongst people. It's kind of wild to think, too, because you look at snowboard now, it's in the Olympics. It's widely accepted as pretty much a mainstream sport, but back then it was like full counterculture. It's certainly not the alternative yeah. that it was when we were coming up. You know, now it's like skiing is an alternative to snowboarding. It's, um, it's different. What kind of boards are you riding back then? K2 Fat Bob. You know, I got a size 13 foot. <laughs> So that was a tough board to learn uh, your snowboarding on, but it kept my feet on the board. But yeah, K2 Fat Bob. Oh, that was a, a friend of mine when I first got into snowboarding. His older brother had a Fat Bob, and that was like the coveted, like, dude, he's got a Fat Bob, man. Like yeah, That board was sick. kind of a big deal. Yeah. Merriman used to ride that a bunch back in the day. Too. That so was like stiff. A, it was like the K2 staple, though, back then. Huh? Yeah, it, it, was, it was either that or the gyrator. So yeah, the gyrator. The gyrator was almost like... Um, slalom inspired so you, you wanted something more freestyle it's like fat bob fat bob i'm going here what kind of pros were you seeing up at big bear oh uh, at that time big bear, it's like you know you got profit you got um purged oh mark gabriel right and then troy eckert who was you know trying to be an athlete but then going into industry and then of course you have steve graham and todd messick and dana nicholson all those socal it was just happening Everybody was there. Now, were you guys rocking snowboard boots this time, or are you guys running OG Sorrells? It was Sorrells. And, um, you know, a funny story about that. Later in life, as when I started working at Transworld, part of my job was to go out and meet all the companies. And without fail, I'd love to go to Sorrell and start the meeting off every time with, I've never been to a company that used to have 100% market share and is now down to the fighting for 5%. It was crazy. That's all we had, right? I mean, other than a few people that maybe even went out in their high tops, which was just ridiculous, Sorrell's is where it started. That's so true. They must not have even realized it, huh? No, not until the trend had passed and yeah, they lost all their sales late. and they're <laughs> like, what's happening? Maybe we should make snowboard boots. <laughs> That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Looking around like, wait, our sales went down a little bit. Damn it. We were the market it. leader, <laughs> yeah. and now we're begging for people to understand who we are. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. I never even thought about that. That's cool. I really liked rubbing that into them. <laughs> so did you work at a snowboard shop? Is that Circle Sports? I did. I worked at Circle when I was in high school. Circle Sports, great shop. It was a ski and snowboard, and you know I was board tech, so I'm T-nutting the boards, 
you know, P-texting them up, waxing them up. Run it back because not all of our listeners are familiar with what like T-bolting a snowboard is. So um, in the early days, everyone, as us as riders, were figuring out how to ride the boards. The manufacturers were trying to figure out how to make the boards. And what was happening was, you know, the, the screw mount, when you mount your bindings on there, they would rip out a lot of times. You know, people were getting pretty gnarly and you try to do one big thing and you're going to rip your foot out in the middle of your trick. So at that point, people realized, screw it. I want to secure this as best as possible. So take the board over, drill out a small hole, come from the top, come from the bottom, T-nut it together, P-tex over it so that's not catching and then wax over that. You know, coming out of high school, going to college, I worked at a, a surf and snowboard shop called H2O. And that was when I got to meet Graham and Messick and, and that whole crew, McNutt. And I was the shop grom, so they, of course, would just bring me all the work to do. Here, kid, do it. Do it. So, yeah, that's where I cut my teeth. And then, uh, what is it, 1992-ish, I think? That, is that when you met Gunny? Yeah, it was 92. I was working at the shop, and the shop owner knew Gunny. And we went up there to ride, and he lived right across the parking lot at Summit. Um, he had a little place, he and his roommate, and they had a big old drum set in the middle of the living room and a nasty, dirty-ass couch that I slept on too many times. But, yeah, it was, it was about that time that Chris and I, he was just a, he was the first ski patrol person allowed to patrol on a snowboard. And that's how, where he was starting from. Good times. Wild. How often were you riding in the back of that pickup truck truck up to that, that crazy road? It, it was once. <laughs> I don't think people know uh, how gnarly that road is if they're not from California. Yeah. But I can hardly ride in the front seat up that road. Yeah, I thought it was a great idea until I was coming home. And it's so cold. And, and luckily, the, the driver was a part-time fireman. So he gave me his fireman's jacket. <laughs> so at least I had something. But, it, I mean, look, I'm... I'm in my I'm 50 now and we're still talking about it. Right? Yeah. It was it was a traumatic experience. <laughs> a little PTSD. You know, you're having the most fun and then realizing, you know, halfway through your day of riding, you start stressing about the drive home. No shell, no no seatbelts, no you just lay down next to the boards and the melt the snow's melting on you and and you don't know where you're going cuz you it's too windy so you're just laying down looking straight up at the sky. Counting the minutes. All worth it for that first day of snowboarding, though, huh? <laughs> it, definitely, it definitely taught me some things in life. Yeah. Well, let's fast forward because uh, I think a huge part of your, your story here is the internship at uh, Transworld. How did that come yeah, about? Yeah, that was an amazing time. I was working at H2O, and it was just a uh, phone came in. This uh, woman was looking for the owner, and uh, he wasn't there, and her and I started talking, Isabel Tiani, and she... Uh, <laughs> Definitely give her an air horn there. Thank you, because she was instrumental. We, we started talking, and she started telling me what she was doing. She was hired by Transworld to put on a snowboarding benefit. To, so it was music and snowboarding to raise money for teenagers with AIDS. Hey, that's, who doesn't want to get behind that, right? Snowboarding music, help kids out, I'm all for it. She was telling me about it, and I just so happened to be leaving for New York the next week because I was about ready to graduate school. I was thinking about an internship, and I wanted to do an internship at uh, MTV in New York. So I said, no worries. I'll, I'm going to New York. I'll spread the word. So I went there, and 
told the few people that I knew and that I'd met with. And then about four or five days later, the owners and the head, all the execs from Transworld went to New York for a press junket, something they had never done before. And they, they went to the MTV offices and they sat down everyone in the boardroom and they said, okay, we're going to tell you about something we're doing. We're really excited about. It's called board aid. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know about it. Like, what do you mean you know about it? We're telling you for the first time. Oh no, Chad was here. He told us about it. And they're like, who the hell is Chad? <laughs> Calling back to the office. Izzy, do you know a guy named Chad? Oh yeah, he's my friend. He's just, you know, he's helping spread the word. Let's get him into the office. At that point, I was in my last semester of college at Long Beach State. I had moved out of my place, so everything was in my garage. And I just had a few weeks left, so I was kind of couch surfing at that point. And then Transworld calls and says, hey, do you want to intern for free? We can't pay you. You live an hour and 10 minutes away from us. Can't pay you for gas or anything. And I was, I was hooked. Like, yes, I'm there. And it was an amazing time. I'd drive down from Seal Beach and uh, spend the night a couple nights at different people's houses who worked there and just did anything they'd throw at me. And really at that point, it's like, all right, we're going to worry about the big sponsors and the big things going on. You corral the athletes and the events on snow. We'll worry about the concerts and the money coming in, and you just make sure that the riders are, are happy and want to be there. So it was great because you're basically sitting there as a kid that no one knows, but you're calling from Transworld calling Brushy, you know, calling every top pro you can think of, getting connected to them through their sponsors and asking them to come to this event. And that was just a great experience being there at that time and um, meeting all those athletes. And so when the day finally came and the whole event went down, I think uh, the, the owners of Transworld saw me busting my tail running around. And after that, they came back to me and said, hey, why don't you work here? Come work here. We got an opening in advertising. And I kind of scoffed at it because I didn't want to sell advertising. I wanted to make advertising. I was going to New York, this big idea. And um, while I was thinking about this opportunity at Transworld, it was also summertime, driving along the coast the whole time, looking at the ocean, thinking about the warm water. And then uh, I decided, you know what, maybe I should stay here and and see how this goes. And that was, that was just the precipice of what was to come for me. It was amazing. Going into a position where my job was to sell advertising and work with all the different companies in the industry, but being the young kid, all the old dogs were happy to take all their deadbeat brands that weren't advertising or were in debt or owed money to Transworld. They didn't have to deal with it because they just gave it to the junior chipmunk. Right, that's what they call me. It's like, <laughs> here you go, and um, it was an amazing time because snowboarding just started to blow up. So people would say, "I don't want to deal with this raw rice guy, um, this brand. He's got some clothing brand." So I'd get on the phone with Raw and talk him through and say, "Okay, you want to buy a four-color, two-page spread in the magazine? Oh, you want a, every issue? Okay, so." You know, at the time we had 10 issues a year, right? So there you go. And you want two pages per. So that's, that's solid. I'm selling like quarter page ads and selling black and white ads in Transworld business. And now I have a spread advertiser. Oh, but wait, you have two brands? 
Oh, two clothing brands and a board brand. Six pages per issue. Okay. So when, when you're hired right out of school and they're pitching me on this job, it's like, hey, you're going to start here. It's new. You're the young kid. You might make about 25 grand this year and being fresh out of school, putting myself through it already in debt. I was like, great. Sounds good to me. I can make that work. And that year when things blew up and all these brands and it's, I'm dealing with the crazy bananas in Europe and the hot and hammer snowboards and all the things that nobody wanted to deal with, just, it just absolutely exploded. So the end of that first year, I made almost a hundred grand. Because you work on oh, commission. the commission. Yeah. Right? Wow. Right. And you don't, you're not getting paid that till the end of the year. So at the end of the season, all of a sudden you get your commission check and it's like, what? I'm I have nothing, and now to me, I have everything. So I think, what, two, two weeks prior to getting that big commission check, I had defaulted on my student loan, so paid that off in full. I, um, I was a fan of watches. I wanted to get myself a nice watch, so I went and started that process and that journey. And then what do all of us do? You invite all your friends over and have a big party. The difference was because I was working in um, – in the print world, I knew a lot of printers, stickers, invitations, designers, beer people, food people. So I wanted to have a big party. And the timing just made sense to make a theme, and it was a prom party. So fast forward, I'm in a small two-bedroom house, and everyone from, the, well, at least in my view, everyone from the Southern California industry was there in my house. Pros, company owners, media people, and, and all my coworkers as well. So when the founders and the owners of Transworld are in my kitchen looking around, seeing all their largest advertisers, top athletes in the same place, that's when they leaned in and they're like, next year, we'll pay for it. <laughs> and that was amazing. You know, I mean, some parts weren't so amazing, like when – Farmer and Palmer on your roof peeing on people as they're walking in the house. <laughs> or then later that night, going into the garage to get something, and the, both Farmer and Palmer were in my garage with the helium tank because we had balloons everywhere, and they were just trying to figure out what to do with it when I walked in. And it was like this, guys, come on. <laughs> and to get someone like Palmer to, like, Okay, you're right, and leave it. I was like, wow, they, <laughs> they, they might actually respect me a little bit. Yeah, it was an amazing time. And also around that time, too, thinking about from your perspective, like you're, you're a young kid, you get into the snowboard industry, and you're selling ads. And also, mind you, the Internet doesn't exist. Some of our listeners might not be able to comprehend that. You're selling print ads, and you're also meeting, like, every single person in the industry, right? How good, how good was that for your, like, kind of networking well, that was incredible because that first year or two after the season, then you go out and you go visit all the companies where they are. And then, you know, you're traveling to the East Coast, you're traveling to the Northwest, and you're sitting down with the founders of these brands. And I think one of the benefits was I was, I was a younger guy, so I was connected to a lot of the, the athletes and the photographers, and then be able to bridge that gap and sit down with the company owners and get perspective on how they're running their business what they're doing, what's important to them, their whole formula, how they outfit their office, see who cares about it, see who doesn't. But just coming straight out of 
some intern into Jake Burton's office or Rich Novak up at Santa Cruz. It was, it was precious. It was an incredible time. All right. I think it's a good time uh, to get into a guest question from Todd Richards. Here we Love go. that guy. Yep. What's up, Baumhole? Todd Richards calling in once again with a question from my good buddy, Chad Denena. Chad, it's pretty well known that you used to work at Transworld as an ad rep. So my first question is, what is the lamest thing that you ever had to do to guarantee an ad for Transworld? And secondly, when you found out that you were selling to Billabong originally, what was the first thing that went through your mind as in, what am I going to buy? What was your first purchase that popped into your head? All right. I can't wait to hear your answers. And uh, yeah, I hope to see you guys soon. Miss you. See ya. So that's great. Um, there, you know, I, I often fought against the establishment being the young kid. I had a lot of arguments with the founders and the, the people that were there ahead of me about what was right or what I thought was right or wrong for snowboarding. One of the things that was fun is during that time, there was a, a ride that had a clothing brand called Capel, uh, And it was, it was known, and, and their marketing was using women, um, beautiful women, in their ads and in the snowboard gear. Well, uh, not everyone in the industry really appreciated the, the point of view of that brand and the ownership. There was another brand up out of Chico area called Glissade and Crap Snowboards. And um, Jeff Pensiero, who now is the owner of Baldface, was running those brands. He might not like this story, but <laughs> he wanted to do a mock ad of Capel. And at that point, the way the ads were created is the, the advertisers actually sent you the film and the color separations that we would then take straight to the printer. And I knew that he wanted to do an ad mocking Capel, and he wanted to do a Krupel ad and so the way that i told him we should do it is wait until the very last moment send it down to me so no one else can see it on my staff and we can slide it in and i'll get yelled at later well he was he was really trying to buy his time and buy his time and i remember talking to him on the phone just saying dude if it's not here tomorrow it's not gonna run i'm holding the page get it down here so fast forward the next day i'm on the phone talking to someone and the receptionist comes in with like a FedEx box. And, and as I'm on the phone, she just gives me this look and this weird eye and puts it down. And, and I'm just kind of on, you know, she walks away. And as I'm on the phone talking, I could smell something from the box. Hung up my phone, ended the call, opened the FedEx, reach in, and there's a big baggie, Ziploc. And in the Ziploc, is the film separations and the proof for the ad. But now the box really smells, and I shake it, and you can hear something inside, and I turn it upside down, and there's a, a joint the size of a cigar in there. <laughs> right? Because they wanted to, they're like, thanks, thanks so much for doing this. But they were so out of it that instead of putting the joint in the Ziploc, they just <laughs> threw it in the box. <laughs> and that, um, that was a good memory, and that was fun. Did the ad ever run? Oh, yeah, the ad ran, and thankfully for that issue, there was a bigger, ish, there was a bigger problem in that Transworld took an ad from a cologne, Calvin Klein, CK1. They put 
a scented strip inside the print magazine that you would, you know, in the time you'd open it up and rub the cologne from the printed page on you. Well, that was so controversial to have an out, a non-endemic advertiser come in and, you know, when kids were getting their snowboard mags in the mail, it, it would smell. And people were so bummed and so upset. So that overshadowed anything that was happening with uh, Capel. I, I remember Tim Pogue, who was running Ride at the time, and Capel. They were super pissed, and they were a big advertiser. But um, there was bigger fish to fry. Mm-hmm. That's cool. You're able to go on a limb for these guys too, and put an ad out like that. You must have had some. You must have been a boss at Transworld at the time. It was. It was a great time because um, in the. In the beginning, because I got so many of the deadbeat brands, I was selling more ads in the business journal, which that just goes out in the industry to the retailers, uh, much smaller print run and, and much less expensive. And these companies that were growing, it's like they had every dollar they could muster up to, to make, to buy an ad. And so that was good to be there in that transition and help guide them. Because at that point, as you mentioned, not, not having the internet yet, a lot of these brands were spending 90% of their marketing budget between Transworld and Snowboarder. It was, you know, print ruled the world. So I don't know where I'm going to go with well, that. Well, part two of his question, when you sold Nixon, you wanted to know what, what you bought or thought about buying or something like that. Yeah, what was the first thing that came to mind when you knew the sale was going on? What were we going to buy? Well, when we went through the process and meeting with the different people that were interested Going into that meeting, there were 17 different companies that were interested in acquiring Nixon. So preparing for that, I was younger and dumber, and, and my what I was interested in, what I was focused on was, okay, well, what's the number and how much am I going to get? And so going into it with an, an estimation or an expectation of what I thought might come out of this, and going into the first meeting and knowing that I had to have 16 more in that first meeting, when they put the, they slid the number across the table, it blew away any assumption or expectation I had, which then made the subsequent 16 meetings really difficult. Because if, if you're only focused on a number and the first person hits a number, come on, there must be something that's more important to you. And that's when you really had to grow up and think, What's more important to me? It's not, it wasn't really about the money. I thought it was. But then we realized we had different criteria. Okay, we wanted someone to come in that wasn't going to mix, mess with the mojo of the brand. You know, we wanted to run it the way that we knew or we thought we could run it. And we wanted the brand to be around longer than us. You know, there's plenty of great brands that outlive the founders. And there's no reason that this one couldn't do that. So I wanted to make sure we could find a home that could allow us to do that. But I know Todd's really big into his cars and um, he, I would have to imagine would think about what car he would buy next. (laughs) But for me, no, there wasn't anything that materially that I wanted to buy. It was just the next step. There wasn't any frugal, like crazy buy. You just went out and I did that. That's what happened in the trans world, right? When I got that first oh, yeah, commission check. There, so, guess, uh, like, to have the party and to do all that and pay off student loans, like, I, I had accomplished it. So, yeah, no, there wasn't um, – I can make up something rad. I mean, my best friend and roommate <laughs> at the time really wanted me to buy a Lamborghini. That wasn't going to happen. Yeah. 
But yeah, a lot of my friends then leaned in and they all told me what they wanted me to buy for myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone had some advice for you. <laughs> well, we're, that's a little further ahead because we'll, we'll get into the whole mm-hmm. Nixon thing. Obviously, everyone wants to hear that story. But I know that you had a very infamous uh, party on a boat. Yes, the K2 boat party. So this was the first trade show after I was officially hired by Transworld. There was a trade show in San Diego called ASR where a lot of the action sports brands would come together to to show their next year's goods to the retailers. And K2 had decided that they weren't going to do spend their money on a trade show booth that year, but they wanted to do something that, to keep their foot in the, in the market. And being that they were up in Seattle at Vashon Island, uh, Haley Martin, who was running marketing at the time, reached out to me and said, Chad, we want, we're thinking about doing a boat party. There must be some boats down there. And again, before internet, I had to just go grab the local yellow pages and then find the different companies that would rent boats out. So fast forward, that's what K2 did. They had probably four or 500 people from the industry on the boat, music, food, free beverages. And I'd literally been working full-time at Transworld for just a few months. And I walk up, I, you know, you, I got my two drinks double fisted up to the top of the boat, to the back of the boat where my boss was and some other friends and retailers and everyone's talking numbers. 200, 300, and hey, what are you guys talking about? How much? How much to jump off the boat and swim in? And, um, and while I was in college, I, I, I played water polo. I was a jock, sorry. <laughs> played water polo. I was a Huntington Beach lifeguard for a short time, so I was well-versed in water. So, hey, this is no problem. I'll do it for 100 bucks. No way. 100 bucks. How far offshore are we talking it's probably 200, 250 yards. Yes. Right? And so what's interesting about San Diego, the, the harbor right there is there's Coronado Island, which is a military base. Right? So that's protected by the Coast Guard. And then you have the other side, which is just public and hotels and this. So I saw a buoy halfway in between, and I told my boss, okay, I'm taking my shirt off and my shoes. And he took my hat off my head and was getting the dollars thrown in there. And I said, okay, I'm going to swim to the buoy. I'm going to swim to the Hyatt and just pick me up there. It'll be all good. You don't realize how fast those boats are going because they're so big. So middle of the night, jump off the boat. Boat goes. I come up and you just hear people screaming, man, overboard. And the sirens on the boat go. And then slowly you can hear like it breaking, trying to slow down. And now I'm panicked. Because this whole huge boat with all 500 people from the industry are, are going to have to come back for me. So head down, swim, 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 make it to the buoy. By this time, the boat is like almost completely pointed at me, but they're still far off. Head down, swim, swim, swim. A little um, Coast Guard boat comes up, you know, something the size of like a Boston whaler. And three guys on there, and as, as they pull up, and they're like, all right, get in the boat, get in the boat. And as they're telling me to get in the boat, they're like, watch out for our animal. What? And they had a dolphin with a lit collar around its neck. So in the boat, there's like a, an empty, a hollow point of the, of the hull that opens up. And then the dolphin comes out and the dolphin swims ahead to find me. Find me, start circling, and they can see it from the boat. And that's how they got to me. That was a trip. So I get in and the guys are like, what's going on? Like, what are you thinking? Like, 100 bucks. 
<laughs> and they were like, ah, oh, that's cool. Okay, let's let's go. So then they start taking me back to the party boat. And I'm like, hey, guys, just take me in. I don't want to go there. Maritime law, we have to take you back to the vessel on which you exited. So now you have everyone from the industry on one side of the boat waiting to see who this jackass is that just jumped off. <laughs> and, yeah, I got back on the boat, and I'm all wet. And Haley's looking at me like, who? Chat. You know, I helped her get the whole thing. And yeah, I just ran past her, ran upstairs, got my beers and <laughs> high-fived. And, and it was, you know, from then on, the next day I'm at the trade show and the president of Transworld, you know, he leans into me. He's like, dude, you were a kook. And like, what if you got hurt and I have to call your parents and you represent a bigger entity? This is Transworld, not you. And I just felt like, oh, man, I blew it. I did, so, what did I do? I'm going to get fired. I just started here. It's a great place. And I'm at the trade show booth, and we're watching the vert ramps, and it's shoulder to shoulder. And then I see the founder of Transworld, Larry Balma, this big bear-looking guy and everyone respected, looked up to, and he gave me the head nod. And, and then I really sunk, and I was so bummed, and I just got up next to him and shoulder to shoulder because there's so many people. He leans into me. He's like, that boat thing you did, best thing ever. Love it. And then it's like, I could do no wrong. <laughs> this is amazing. So yeah, that was a good time. And, you know, a lot of people in the industry said, oh, that guy's not going to last more than three weeks. And, uh, yeah, I did all right. What year was this? Tough to remember. 93, let me see, 93, 94, uh, 94, 95, 96. We started Nixon in 97. It's like 94, 95. That's incredible. I never heard about these dolphins. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the dolphins <laughs> as well. So they we train the dolphins? How that. does this work? So, so, <laughs> so there in Coronado, they have the, the submarine base. You know, there's a lot of naval activity going on there. And they use the dolphins for various explosive exercises. And you don't really know, right? I'm sure you could look it up on the internet and figure it out. But there was dolphin tanks, which was a known surf spot, right offshore from where they housed the military dolphins. And they got crazy training going on because they they're so give smart, them some huh? fish if they come back and find somebody? Yeah. Or how do they, how do it, they do it? It was unreal. Because it had like a headlamp wrapped around it? Yeah, it had this light, lit collar lit so collar. they could see where it's going and then follow the dolphin. You didn't see it in the water, huh? Like, no, not until I was getting back in the, the boat and it was swimming around the boat. And they're talking animal. Like, yeah. what, what animal do I have to worry about? <laughs> so uh, to, to keep the, the story going along here of, of your journey, I know that when you got that, that first big check where you, you got all that commission, you're working at Transworld, you did actually buy yourself something when you were young. I right? did. I, I wanted, because working in the shops, making watch bands, I was always into watches. And here I go, I made some money, I wanted to buy myself a nice watch. But working with a lot of the small brands and being 22, 23 at the time, I wasn't ready for the Rolex experience. Because... You know, I still have companies that are giving me their last, like, $75 to buy a print ad in the business magazine. I can't roll in there all flossed out. And so I looked around and found a watch that wasn't really expensive, but it was an automatic. It was stainless steel. It, it was just a good quality timepiece, but it was a Seiko. The, the brand didn't resonate with me. I didn't connect to it. And me being a guy that had my, had my sunglasses and my my branded shoes and my clothing, like brands were important to me that, that, that showed people what we were into. And it told people the story of who you were and to have something that was the most expensive piece that I had no emotional connection to. That's when the light went on. 
And it's like, I'm watching people start Arnett sunglasses back in the day or DC or Soltech, all these great brands, but nobody was making watches. And here's something that I really liked that I realized, wait a second, nobody's doing this. So now I can start something and I won't even be competing against my friends. Because what a bummer when you see two people that are good friends working together and they both leave and they start sunglass brands and now they're arch rivals and they hate each other. And so the idea to create something that I wasn't competing against all these people who would open their doors to me that allowed me to see inside their business more so than just the lobby, you know, and I really got to break down how they were spending their marketing dollars because a lot of it was coming through Transworld. It was, um, that's when, when the light bulb went on. But at the same time, I'm being paid to travel around the world and snowboard. Any resort I went to, you just show that business card, free lift tickets, free food, whatever you need. It, was, it couldn't have been better for someone in their early 20s who really loved what they were doing. Yeah, the ad, the ad guys get schmoozed. Yeah, they, they really get, get, schmoozed. get schmoozed. Yeah, every brand, every resort. Uh, one of my last years at Transworld, it worked out where um, in, in our house, it was the publisher, the editor of the business magazine, Michael Lucas, the photo editor, Shem Roos, and myself. I was responsible at that time for probably 70, 80% of the revenue coming into the building in the snow mag. And it was a great group because, and I think where it really made sense to me is I could be that person to connect where you have someone like Shem Roos comes over from the East coast, working under John Foster Shem's working at Transworld, but he's still shy and he doesn't want to pick up the phone and call Brian Noguchi or Peter Lyon to say, hey, do you want to go on a trip with me? The editors and the photographers were scared to get shut down by the athletes. But on the flip side, no athlete wants to ask if they can go on a trip. You want to be invited. So now there's this communication gap. And I'm going out to the companies and meeting all the marketing people and subsequently all the athletes. And they're my friends. And the editors are scared, to, and everyone's scared to call each other. So I'd have the athlete come in, and then I'd go grab the photo editor, whether it's Foster or Shem, grab Eric Blem, and we'd go grab lunch. And then they're friends, and then they can go off and go do a trip to Japan. And I would hang out at my cubicle in Transworld and wait for the next pro to come in that's too shy to ask to go on a trip. Now, I have a, I have a good kind of question in regards to, like, actionable advice. So, you know, you went in there, you... You basically were a kid. You got an internship at Transworld. You climbed your way up really quickly. And there's probably a lot of listeners that are like, I want a job in the industry. I want to figure something out. Do you have any advice for a, a younger person that's trying to get their foot in the door, maybe as interning at a brand of like what to do? Well, I mean, with the internet today, it's so people are so, so much more accessible. It's so easy to figure out who's running that. You can find their, their Instagram most likely and DM them. And just the, the accessibility that people have today is, is unlike what it's ever been. And my advice to them is just go there, reach out to those people. We all, the beautiful thing about snowboarding, whether it's the industry or as an athlete, we all start at a level. You don't jump on your board and you're the, the amazing rider from the get-go. You have to learn like everyone else. And I think we can appreciate that in new people, when you see someone on the hill that might need help and you want to give them a little advice, oh, your, your strap's undone. You might want to hit that. Or your, your binding looks like it's about ready to pop off. You might want to tighten that. 
whatever those little nuggets of information. Same goes for the industry. The idea that, you know, I'm sure you guys will have it. Kids will start coming here and that big glossy sign out there for the corporate media bomb hole. <laughs> Kids are going to start coming here. Like hey, It might start like, can I get a sticker or a t-shirt? But really, they want to work here. And I think just putting yourself out there and not being scared to get shut down because half the people will slam the door in your face. But there's going to be someone that can relate to the experience that they had when they were younger and they're going to see something and take advantage of that. I, I go to uh, Andy and I have the opportunity to speak at schools often for the entrepreneur uh, classes. And when I get up there, I write my email up in class and I tell everyone, I say, Hey, this is my email. Hit me anytime. But when you graduate, you're dead to me because you're going to be like everyone else trying to get a job. But right now you're a student you're learning, and I want to feed into that, and I want to help you. So here's accessibility. Come in and let me then, hey, you want to work at a board brand, and you live in Colorado? Hey, maybe you call the Never Summer guys. Here's their names. Here's their numbers. Do you know them? You should, they're great people. You know, helping people out through that way, and I think um, there's a lot of people in the industry, like yourselves, that have been there from the beginning that you want to look out for for someone else and see them have a good experience. And I don't think enough people really, they recognize that there's that um, welcoming side of the industry. Mm-hmm. Well said. Yeah, well and you said. went from uh, intern to selling 80% of the sales for Transworld. Who knows who that next kid might be? 100%. Yeah, so it, yeah. It's, it's nice to even find that kid too. So if they reach out to you and you see that talent, that's a cool thing. Yeah, and you, you see a little bit of yourself in there. Yeah, you and might you, see yourself. You just want to feed that. Yeah, that's cool. Well said. So let's get back to the the inception of of Nixon. So you you kind of you, you got you had the idea. You're like no but no other watch company. It's it's open market share. And and then what happened? Well, I will say this as we start talking about Nixon. Anything I say in here needs to be fact checked by my business partner Andy. <laughs> Let's give Andy an air horn, huh? Let's give Andy the biggest air horn oh, possible. This, I remember uh, Swatch in the 80s, but they kind of fizzled out, right? I remember Rodney Mullen came to town with a mall tour. Oh, they had the full, they had the ramp, they yeah. had tons of contests. They put a lot into it. Yeah. But like a lot of different companies, if you're not vested into it, you're jumping from the next trend to the next trend. So yeah. if snowboarding was hot or skateboarding was hot, it worked. And then they were on to the next thing. True. So they then weren't be, like lifers in skateboarding. Yeah, so so definitely props to them because they they provided events for us to elevate the athletes. They sponsored the athletes, and that we all know how important that is. Um, and to find a bigger company like that that had the resources and put the sport up on a um, on a platform to really show and build the awareness, I gave them props for that. Yeah. All right. So going back to the inception of of Nixon, uh, we should talk about you and your, your partner to be uh, Andy in, in the founding of the company. Yeah, Andy's amazing. Um, you know, look, everyone has great ideas, but it takes someone special to take that idea and put traction behind it and really make it something. I was doing well at Transworld and went out and bought that watch, which I was happy about but not excited. And that's when that opportunity went on. And the idea of the opportunity came about. So I started traveling. And then as I'm traveling with Transworld, part of my perspective really changed to how would I do this? What would I need 
to start a watch company. And um, I w- it was, you know, I'm a realist. I know where my skill sets are, and I know what I can and cannot do. So realizing that I need someone who can probably run a business and build product. I went to sushi dinner with my friends in Southern California. You know, growing up in the industry, I had Lisa Hudson and Eric Koch. Lisa Hudson was running swag at the time and twist and Tuesday and Eric Koch was running the team and marketing at Burton and we're sitting down and I was like, guys, I have an idea. Watches. And, uh, I told them what I was thinking and, and whatnot. And Eric Koch is, it's hard to find a, um, he, he always looks at the negatives, right? And, he called me about two days later and he's like, you know, I've been thinking about what you said, that watch idea. That's a really good idea. You should talk to Andy. So Andy, Andy Lotz was a product manager, the board product manager at Burton snowboards. He just happened to also be Eric's roommate when he lived in Vermont. I said, ah, what's Andy up to? You know, Andy's a mechanical engineer from Cornell that then, working at GE Plastics, one day Jake Burton walks in and says, I need to build this new snowboard binding. And a bunch of old guys at GE Plastics is looking over at the the purple-haired intern, Andy, like, it's Jake Burton, talk to him. (laughs) And Andy was enamored and excited. They got along great. And Jake's like, hey, you want to come work for us? And Andy was a little shy to tell him, like, I'm still in school interning. But he's like, okay, okay. And uh, he landed that role, and subsequently he was at Burton for about five, six years. And uh, he wanted something more for his future, so he left Burton, and he applied to business school at Stanford University, which is arguably the best business school in the nation. So go back to my conversation with Eric Koch, and he's telling me about, ah, you should reach out to Andy. Like, what's Andy up to? Oh, he left Burton. He's at business school. And now it's like, okay, here's a product guy that's learning how to run a business. This is a twofer. Andy, what are you up to? And he was finishing up his first year and I kind of told him the idea and he's like, eh, you know, this is when like Google's starting. And he wasn't really enamored and thinking about going back into the industry. You know, and I'm like, hey, let's do watches. And he's like, that's a niche. That's a niche on a niche because it's going into the snowboard industry. Like, and my vision for it was bigger and broader than just watches. It was accessories and here's companies I've done it, but they're not coming at it from the same perspective. And he was like, all right, okay, I see what you mean. He still had another year to go in school. So I was down in Encinitas in Southern California and he was up at Palo Alto and we'd talk probably every two weeks and he'd give me the planner that he is. He'd give me a homework assignment. You know, what about international? Will shops carry it? Will the athletes support it? Will distributors do it? And then he was looking in the back end, well, how do you make a watch? And is there a good margin in it? And, and, and he was running his ideas past his classmates and his teachers. I'm running my ideas past the pro athletes that are coming in and uh, the shop owners. And we met in the middle on everything from like meeting once a month to every two weeks. Everything was coming together to about the time he was getting ready to graduate. And I was traveling up in um, the Northwest, riding at Stevens Pass. And uh, I remember because we had a conference call and you got to use a payphone. So I'm on the payphone 
talking to Andy and he's like, look, I'm getting ready to graduate and, and, and this is a great idea and, and I'm going to do it. So you can either quit your job and come join me as a co-founder or you can wait and in six months I'll hire you and you can come work for me. And I was like, this is my idea. Yeah, that's, that's nuts. <laughs> and he's like, it's a great idea. And so, and he needed to see if I was really into it, right? See how serious you were, he, huh? You know, he's got 80 grand worth of student loans and, and I'm just cruising, snowboarding, having fun, jumping off boats. And um, I said I was down. I'm in. I'm in. I'm committed to this. Hung up the payphone. I went back to get my board. My board got stolen. And that to me was the sign like, okay, you know what? It's time to stop playing and time to start working. And uh, that, was, that was the beginning of it, right? So then Andy graduated. We had the debate, do we start the brand in Northern California or Southern California? I told him we were closer to the water and you never have to wear anything heavier than a 3-2 wetsuit. <laughs> and that kind of did it. And he came down and we set up a small shop and finished out our business plan. You know, here's two guys that have this great idea, but no money. And Andy's in debt. So now I'm having to pay for his living expenses while we figure this out. And we wrote up our business plan. And then what do you do? You reach out to your friends. You know, some friends in the industry that had success, classmates of Andy's. Um, and hooker by crook, we raised our money. That was in uh, just towards the end of 1997. We raised just under a million dollars. And put all that money in the bank and started working. So raised like investors and family friends. Yeah, and no, so no, no family friends. Just investors. Because the idea, first off, our neither of our families were in position to to pair to off put the money. money. In, yeah. And at the same time, you know, there's that saying where you you always want to go home for the holidays. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot harder to do if you just burned your parents for a bunch of dough. Mm-hmm. So, you always, so I'd actually never heard that, but that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> So for us, um, while we said, yeah, let's not go to our families, our families couldn't do it anyway. So it was friends and it's friends. big money. What friends and friends and friends. What was here. the initial uh, capital raise? It was, we were trying to get to a million. Yeah. So we got just under it. But we also did it so you know, nobody was coming in as, as a lead investor that, that could control us or tell us how to do it. Mm -hmm. And it was a great mix of people. There was 19 different people uh, that, that came and joined us to help us do this. And take it from there. And, and it, you know, for them, it was a small little piece. And they all got a nice payout, I imagine. It worked really well yeah. for them. Yeah, it was great. So I think this is a great time for a guest question from another great entrepreneur slash friend of yours, friend of the show, Mr. Ken Block. Hey there, Bombos. Ken Block. Uh, I'm in Africa. Those are zebras. That's Mount Kilimanjaro. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about Chad Denena. Chad is a great human and someone I would call a good friend for a very long time, even though I don't get to see him very often. Um, but he's had a great success with a brand, obviously called Nixon. And I knew him when he started at Transworld. In fact, quick little story. He took me to Nike uh, to, for a full-on tour back when you know we had just started dc and i was trying to figure out the shoe design world so thanks chad for that that was very nice of you to take me there so i could see that stuff um but random question for chad uh i gave him a suggestion back in the day about uh the name of his company i told him to spell nixon n-i-x-i-n because i'm a logo guy i think in logos 
So I thought N-I-X-I-N, totally symmetrical. You could do it either way. Make one of the ends backwards. It could be very cool. Uh, he didn't listen to me. Why, Chad? Why didn't you listen to me? So that's my question. Hope you all are well. Um, and that's it. See you guys. Hi, Chad. Hi, Ken. Yeah, those are some good memories right there. Is he really in Africa? Yeah, he's racing uh, Porsches. Dude. Oh, wow. He's racing Porsches. It's like a ridiculously long race, like thousands and thousands of miles over like a week or something like that, driving past elephants. But I'd expect nothing yeah. nothing else. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that was great. That that trip to, to Nike was a pretty inspiring trip for both of us. And it, it gave us an opportunity to really get to know each other past just the industry. And, um, and he, was, he was one of the few people that I could confide in and get some advice because he was just a few years ahead of us. And he, he, I, he gave me that idea, like, Nixon, when the board, when the athlete's in the air, it'll read the right way either way if it's upside down or not. I was like, oh, that's pretty good. I took it back <laughs> it, to Andy. It is I'm pretty all, good. I'm like, Andy, it's Ken Block. Like, we should do this. One of our criteria for the brand was that it, you could pronounce it in, the, in different countries. And didn't have ulterior meanings. And I was afraid people would pronounce it differently. Nixon. It just didn't roll off the tongue. And the fact that it was Nixon with the O, it was so odd for people. It was at a time when people were focused on names that were more derivative of the sport. Um, this was something that just stood out like a weird uncle you know how everyone has that weird uncle and it just stood out to where it kind of stopped people in the, in their tracks, you know? So, so Ken gives us this idea and we're still formalizing everything that we're doing. So we go up to Mount hood. It's a great time. we go up to Mount hood to have focus groups with the riders and then some of the coaches. And uh, we bring everyone in and pizza and sodas all the way around. And we're, we are trying to validate, how much people would pay for a watch and what functions would you want on the watch? And we also had all these ideas for names. And one of the points we started this little like brainstorm. Hey, first thing that comes to mind, I'm going to throw it out there. Tell me what you think. And you'd start off with some established brands like Swatch or G-Shock and you go on and, and you know, 13, 14 year old kids, super opinionated. They're not going to hold back. Lame, dumb. You know, they were just spitting things out right away. Nixon. Start peppering in some of those names you're thinking of. You drop Nixon on them, and it was blank stares. Quiet. I think my mom said he did something bad once. And then you realize that they're just not even connecting it to the president. This one kid that, that does, it's because his parents don't like it. Well, if your parents don't like it, I think you're going to like it even more. <laughs> right? You have so that true. ownership. It's mine. Yeah. It's not yours. Mm-hmm. And so that was interesting, and I was like, whoa, that's pretty cool. And then 20 minutes later, you have the athletes and the coaches in there, the pros, the bigger brains, smarter, same, exact same situation. They had a lot, of, a lot of ideas and words, and then as soon as you say Nixon, just blank stares. And I, that, from that minute, I knew that, what, that had to be the name. Andy wasn't convinced yet, but I was like, anything that makes you stop and think about it, that was golden. And then we pulled the trigger, and that was Nixon. I think you're right about spelling it with an I. It's like all these rappers that spell their names different. You don't know how to pronounce it. You're just confused. 
You're looking at it yeah. too many ways. From a graphic standpoint, I think Ken's right, but from a name standpoint, somebody in Japan, it might throw him off. I think it's hard to argue. Obviously worked. It's hard to argue with Ken. There's not a lot of things yeah. he's been wrong on, but yeah. Well, getting into some more Nixon stuff, we have another guest question uh, in regards to once you kind of started up the team and things like that. And this one comes from none other than Jeremy Jones. Here we go. Hey, Chad. This is Jeremy. I got a question for you. Two questions, actually. One, about Nixon. You started Nixon, you and Andy, and you cared so much about the team. You cared about their voice. You cared what they thought about other team writers. You always went to the team about product and about the brand. Um, you also ran a brand that just contributed. Nixon Jib Fest, for one. Um, I mean, that's the most powerful to me in my world in snowboarding. So why don't you just talk about that? Talk about Nixon, the brand, and why it was important to care about all those that were involved. I mean, when you sold, I got a huge check. And I've never even had a contract with Nixon. So to me, that was dope. That was just respecting, you know, the people that helped you build it. And so talk about it. And the next thing, check under your chair, dude. See what's there. And then talk about that, son. Ah, I love Jeremy Jones. That's awesome. Hey, Jeremy. Uh, well, look, I think we learned a lot from Andy's experience at Burton. Making the boards, his job was to work with the athletes and figure out what they wanted and then share that and work with the engineers and the manufacturers to make the boards the way the athletes wanted to ride them. And so it was a natural process that made a lot of sense. And the validation came from a, a more, uh, from a, a group bigger and broader than just your own personal selfish wants and needs. So bring all these great skateboarder surfers and snowboarders together and ask them what they want. Sometimes it might just be, hey, make them yellow because I want them to match my shoes. Another one might be, I have this backpack and it's got these amazing straps and can we use that strap material to make a band? Hey, maybe. Or I want an analog watch with a digital alarm. Oh, I haven't seen that before. So it's constant ideation coming from the athletes and wanting to make products that really spoke to them that they connected with was something that I thought a lot of brands did. But I started to realize a lot of brands were just building products and then pushing them down to the athletes. So the athletes were, were happy to use those products, but they were really interested and excited to be in the, in the room when you're actually creating it. And the idea later where, you know, they might be at a coffee shop and some total stranger behind them who doesn't even know what they do is saying, oh, I like your watch. You know, it doesn't happen as much on the, when you're on the hill and someone's like, oh, I like your snowboard boot. I really like your outerwear jacket. You know, it doesn't happen as much. And there they're getting this validation from people that don't even know who or what they do. And they'd turn around and, and there's such a culture around watch collectors that they started tapping into that themselves. And people would say like, oh, I've never seen that before. What is that? And they took a lot of pride and it, it fed into their participation that much more because of that next product meeting they really then came prepared with a lot more ideas. And that was just that was just fuel for the fire. When you have that many athletes coming to you, bringing in these ideas, and how are you going to keep 
that group of people on the same page, well, it's really important who you're bringing together. So for the team, one way that we could make sure that everyone had buy-in was in each sport after you got the first person, the second person, it was a team vote. So first person we ever had on the team for snow is Dave Downing. Let's give him an air horn, can we? <laughs> and so Downing, as we started to build this team, it, you know, my approach, our approach was, you don't, I didn't want to have the big country kid, the freestyler, the East Coast, the West Coast. That's a little too nice and neat. And what you're doing is you're creating a, a marketing team, but it's not a true team. I wanted to have a team where people wanted to travel together and hang out and respected each other. Because you know what it's like when you get on a team, you see the athletes and they add this one, one rider that maybe everyone else doesn't like and it shifts the whole team and it creates tension. So we had this team vote as a way to preserve the, the nature of the team. And it, it couldn't just be you and all your bros. I mean, the influence were, were coming around the globe athletes in Europe and Asia and North America. But having that buy-in and that vote, once you got on the team, then you really had a responsibility to fulfill. And we've always valued that, not just in the product, but how we marketed. And, you know, case in point, Jeremy brought up the Jib Fest. And that was a moment where I sat down with Dave, JP, and Jeremy. And as we were growing, I said, guys, look, I want to do something. I want to support you. I want it to come from you. I want to know what you guys want to do that hasn't been done yet. Do you want to make your own magazine or a book or a movie? Those were kind of the traditional things people were doing. At that point, the X Games were really kind of taking off. Um, They're making a big splash in the media world, and there were a lot of rules. I think probably the year before, JP actually got thrown out of the X Games because it was a good powder day, and he just he jumped off the snow lift. You know, he was on he was on the lift going up and instead of getting to the top, he just jumped off the lift. He got thrown off the hill, thrown out of the X Games for that. So so there was this underlining like, mm, we don't want that corporate thing. We want our own thing. So as we started talking about events right away, I'm thinking, well, we need to get Gunny in this conversation. He's up at Summit. He can make this happen. And so that, that was another prime example. The whole idea of the Jib Fest came from the athletes. And what I could tell them is, hey, look, you guys have the ideas. I have the time. I have the energy to go out and do what you want to accomplish. So let's figure it out. And so, and then here comes the Jib Fest. Now, I have a Patreon question, but first, you didn't look under your chair, I don't think. No, I did, and oh, I, got, did. I got really excited. Um, what do you got under there? So for the, for the, the kids at home, you might be familiar with uh, the Nerds family, Nerd Ropes. <laughs> Uh, they're delicious candy, and for those of you who may know Jeremy Jones, if you're so lucky, he is a candy fiend, and it was probably the second Jib Fest where he and I were going into the um, the grocery store, and we discovered these together, <laughs> and we've never lost our love for the nerd ropes, and we constantly find new products that nerds make. And we're and still to this day, as Text grown men, <laughs> sending, oh, did you see this new flavor? Did you see this? So it brings back good memories to see those nerds. Just rope. fans. So I have a Patreon question. Chris, first, uh, tell us a little bit about Patreon. Yeah, so Patreon, well, first of all, our show, you know, we have we have our sponsors that help us do this. We have you guys that 
buy merch, which helps us do this show. But a huge, huge support is our Patreon. And so uh, you can sign up. You can find a link on our website, uh, bombhole.com. And on there, you can uh, you get some, you know, if you sign up for a Patreon, you, there's a paywall, but you get exclusive content and you get to ask a question on air and you submit your questions and we pick a few. And who's this one from, Buds? You know, this is actually echoed. There was like six people that sent this. A couple names, uh, Marshall Moberg, Piss Pigeon, Jason Hume. And there's probably like six people that actually all ask the same question. And basically, why hasn't there been another Nixon jib fest? And can we expect another one in the future? Well, thank you for asking. Um, you know what? I bring it back to the athletes. It's There was a point where in doing the jib fest, you know, part of it is who you can invite. You know, it's invitation only. It's not open to the public. Invitation to the media. Small group selection of, of athletes. And as time went on, it got pretty heated. JP and Jeremy and Dave started getting not threats, but they were definitely having a lot of athletes lean on them because they wanted to come. Mm. And I remember it's, I remember Jason Brown, Jason Brown, where are you? He was leaning. He wanted to go so bad. And he was, he was leaning in on JP and Jeremy and they were sweating it. And I think part of the pressure as it started to mount is is they were they were scared to bum people out. Yeah. And so so we took some natural hiatuses too because it needed to make sense. It it couldn't be something that you had to do. It needed to be something that you wanted to do. And so so those years as we were doing it, uh sometimes we'd take a gap, take a year off and then bring it back again to a different resort, always with the same group and always with Gunny. And so we just kind of felt like we we had done what we had wanted to do. And there was more things happening around in snowboarding. And they were probably at a point in their careers where there was so much pressure and so much wants and needs on them that I didn't have a problem taking a year off. And then a year started into two and then three. But I was with Jeremy just a few days ago. And I'll be with JP soon. And Gunny just yesterday. And that's the discussion. It doesn't make sense today. And, and who do we build it around? Because now as we have the young bucks on the team coming, they might want to do something else. I mean, you look at, look at what then Ken did with the Mountain Lab, right? He, he looked at the jib fest and was a fan of it. And then like, what, how could he put his spin on it and make it different? And he just elevated it by leaps and bounds. And, and look at Travis, right? Who was a regional rider, a, a Grom of ours at the time when he was coming up when we were doing the jib fest and I can't help to look at a little bit of natural selection and be like, that's his version. And I love it when the athletes are feverishly desiring to bring back the next iteration of what the jib fest can be. It's absolutely it's back on. Well, one thing piss pigeon added, that's not a question, but a statement that I wanted to read to you. The Nixon jib fest was one of the first videos that left a lasting impression on me as a young kid because it made me realize that snowboarding was something that was best enjoyed with friends. Yeah, that, I'm glad that that resonated. Because what, what we had realized at the time is, as snowboarding started to grow up, riders started to get their entourages. And so, in the beginning, as riders, when they travel together, you're in the van, you're on the lift, on the hill, building the kicker, 
you're you're sleeping on the floor next to each other in the hotel room because you only have one room and there's six people in there. The camaraderie was starting to get like fracture, little cracks here and there where you couldn't really get to people or get that quality time. Maybe someone come in for the event. As soon as it's over, they'd leave because they have their girlfriend and their three other friends and they'd go do something else. And we wanted something where we'd bring everyone together. So what was important was, hey, if you're coming to this, we're all staying together. We're spending three days, morning, noon, and night together. So the conversations change. And you're really now starting to get to know who this person is. Someone's going to bring their guitar. Someone else is going to bring their video game set up. But when you're all staying together, it's everyone's feeding into it. And that camaraderie was just as important. I think it resonated to On the Hill and the way that they encouraged. And we wanted to, to give them an opportunity to do what they love to do and bring in the people that they want to bring in who inspire them. And, it, you know, it got crazy. There was, go back to why we didn't do it and the pressure. I mean, I laugh and bring up Jay Brown, but, you know, one day Peter Line showed up. Nobody invited him. He just showed up <laughs> and he started to ride one of the features. And then it's like, okay guys, who's going to tell Pete he has to leave? <laughs> Not that we didn't respect him, yeah. but he was, he was so far and above where he was in, in the sport that there was just, there was this, this whole other, I can't think of the word. There was just this mystique and this, this whole thing around him and JP and Jeremy, you know, while they shared the team together with him, I think they really appreciated having something that was theirs. And so, yeah, that was an uncomfortable one. I think Chris Ingalls, man, you, can we give him one too? Yep. I'm glad that he can smile. And, and, but there was, there was a conversation we had at the bottom of the hill. But he showed up to Chris, you, you, you can't. And I think the, the next year he was actually invited. Yeah. But there was one of those where it's like, but going back to what you said, you know, I got invited to the last chip fest that you guys did. And it's so funny because, you know, I was there and didn't even like it was such an incredible experience. But the way you guys had it set up was so amazing because it's like everybody's in one hotel. Everybody gets together for a huge dinner every single night. And then everybody goes as a unit to the hill. And so there is this just kind of big group mentality i love what you said how the camaraderie gets fractured that's such a well put thing because when you look at our our industry like you know you go to a regular contest there's like three guys that are friends over here and they're in their room four guys over there everything's segregated but the way you guys set up the gym fest you have group breakfast and dinner and the food fucking the food is like the whole thing's catered it's like it's insane it was it was a very incredible experience the whole thing and uh i think snowboarding needs it i think it should definitely make its way back i appreciate hearing that so many years later it, it was a time where people started to make some cabbage right and so they could afford to have their own rental car have their own hotel room do their own things get into their own zone and that wasn't that's we wanted to combat against that we wanted to keep it grassroots keep it core keep it fun we eventually then started doing them in Europe. It's like Gigi. Here's, I mean, here, Gigi, the, the European riders, 
They weren't always coming over all the time. They saw what was happening and they're like, look, we want to do ours. And it's like, all right, well, how are we going to make it unique? Well, actually, Giggy's uncle has a small hill that has lifts on it. And it has a small lodge there. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, why would we not utilize that? So let's do a European version. And it's the same philosophy, the same point of view, and the quality time that you get, the access that the, that the invited, few invited photographers or media to bring all those people together. So whether now we have one in North America and one in Europe and, and building that camaraderie and sharing that with the industry and getting into those stories, it was amazing. I mean, I think in one year or two, then it resonated so well for the athletes because, because of the way that we set it up with the media, they knew like one year, I think we got six covers between North America and Europe. There were so many different video because we would let the guys like, hey, you come to your part, take the video and go use it in whatever video you're filming for. So the, the exposure after that first and second year was so much larger for them that it really resonated and they knew that it was a fun thing that was low-key and they could try things that they might not normally do in front of a big crowd. You know, um, you got a whole bunch of people there and the team managers, all of a sudden the te- you're, you're worried like, am I wearing the right boot? And do I have the new jacket that you gave me? You know, you don't want to stress about that as an athlete. So let's get the TMs out of there. Let's get the, the, the normal um, fans that would appreciate it. But let's, let's keep that separate and let people try to do something that they've never done. And no, don't be scared when you land on your ass because no one's going to laugh at you. That's a good point in the sense that it was like set, you guys always set it up in a private environment. I didn't think, cause that's also the only people there are the people snowboarding, couple photographers and people that work at Nixon basically. Yeah. That you was know. the benefit of, of Chris Gunnarsson. Yeah. You know, to have someone like that, that could really lock up and give you build the atmosphere and, and, and provide for what was to happen. And, and even that was fun because I remember one year we were, you know, we were doing the, the big rainbow rail and we were sitting there taking a break. And then KJ, Kevin Jones, saw some poachers in the forest taking photos. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, everyone, come here. Okay. 50 feet into the woods, there's two guys and everyone starts making their snowballs. You know, and then all of a sudden you have like 15 guys turning around, running, screaming, throwing snowballs. <laughs> At these two kids that were just fanning out, taking some photos, um, it was great. It was fun to protect it like that. And then everyone knew the Jip Fest was happening to then see the tricks that would come out. Guys at the time weren't filming and posting them on their own social media because that wasn't happening. So they needed to wait until they saw it in the magazine or see that MacDog video come out with that video part. And it, it was something that people really looked forward to and it was generated a lot of fun and I think it influenced other events in the future and how they did theirs. Okay. I got a couple things I want to add on, on the Nixon jib fest front to, to the likes of what you're talking about. One thing that's like really notable on just a snowboard nerd front is that that's also a huge time for innovation and tricks. If you look at rail snowboarding at that time, people were like kind of doing back lips and two seventies, but they hadn't really refined it. They hadn't refined. So JP Walker, Jeremy Jones, and you'd see 
new tricks come out from the jib fest. They go there and progress the sport of of jibbing basically and and made it what it is today. And every year you'd see, oh, there's a switch front board pretzel or there's a you know, oh, like the back lips are all of a sudden going between the bindings and they're square where before it was just like make it to the end of the rail. And I thought that it was a huge forefront on the on the subject of progression, A. And then to me, the most iconic thing B is is that sticks out when I think Jib Fest is like that circle rail, you know, the circle rail session. That so, hit some covers, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and so speaking about the progression, I think one of the things that was great about it is because working with Chris Gunnarsson, we would spend so much time figuring out and planning like what should the obstacles be? And again, hey, don't take it from me. Take it from the best in the sport. So we spent a lot of time and Chris spent a lot of effort really diving in on what is it that you want to see there? And you know what it's like? You, you roll up on a spot and it's your tricks are only going to be as good as what the spot's going to allow you. And them having that experience of going to so many different spots and trying so many different things, now it's like, well, if that, if that rail was just two feet longer, what else could I have done off of that? Or if it was a round rail versus a square rail, how could I have slid it differently? Now here's the opportunity where it's like, hey, we're going to go build it. So what do you want? You want it two feet built longer? You want a round rail as opposed to a square rail? We can give you that. So that, I think that progression in the builds allowed the athletes to then really try things because it, it, it was no longer, you weren't limited by the obstacle that you were working with. You were limited by your own abilities. Mm-hmm. And there's also, you know, big kudos to you guys and Gunny too and pushing like park features, park rails to a whole nother level. Because if you look at early videos, you know, it's a flat down rail, a down rail, you know, a box, but then that was the first time, you know, you see a C rail. That was the first time you see all these different, a rail with stairs in a park, you know, a, a ledge, the, the down, the down ledge looked like a hubba, you know, the full staircase built into the snow. I mean, that was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And the circle rail, like that was something Jeremy was dreaming of for probably a couple of years and being able to build it and get it up there. And, and, and then, you know, making sure that you have the takeoff and the landing in the right spots. And then just to watch those guys, so many tries because the momentum, since they never had a real, a real good circle rail, you didn't know what was going to be the challenge. You know, and then getting on it and realizing that your momentum is swinging so fast and it's speeding you up. But by the time you're exiting, you're actually exiting with more speed than you entered it with. And that was, you know, that was, that's what made it so tricky. But then that's what made it, so rewarding when everyone is sitting there, all the best athletes are sitting there watching you once you make it. Oh, it's, you know, hugs and high fives and <laughs> screams. And it was amazing. Incredible. Now, uh, a couple things I want to highlight from your earlier conversation that I were takeaways for me. Um, you know, I think when you talk about your team, you know, you talk about oh, you know, what should we do, guys? What should we do with the watch? Who should we put on the team? What you're really doing is you're making them feel a part, making them take ownership of the decisions. So I think from like a man- managing standpoint, whether you are on any business, this is good advice for anybody running a small business or running a team of people. You really, what a normal boss does is they say, hey guys, this is what we're going to do, 
right? And every and then when the idea sucks, they're like, "Well, it's my fucking boss's idea. It sucked, right?" When you get when you say, "Hey guys, what should we do?" What does that do? Psychologically, everybody on the team's like, well, I think we should do this, and I think we should do that. Then all of a sudden, they had a part in the decision. Then all of a sudden, they're taking ownership of it. And so, like, from a from a big fundamental standpoint of how you guys ran Nixon and brought everybody in, I think all teams could take such a better note of that. You know, it's 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 great. It's it's tricky, though, because what do you do when they come to you with the wild idea out of left field? You, you, you can't just take the ones that you want. And leave the other one. I mean, you can, but there's going to be ideas that come out that might not be popular with yourself. But if it's popular with the team, majority rules. You know, a great example of that is, I don't know, 99, 2000 summer X games in San Francisco. And I needed to get the team together because there was a decision to be made. Because Tony Hawk wanted to ride for us. You know, Tony, I'd see him everywhere, and he came up to me one day and said, hey, I'm really into watches. I'm no longer with Swatch. I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing. I want to be part of the team. And telling Tony, uh, I remember the conversation, hey, if it was up to me, I'd have you here today. But this is how we do it. We do a team vote. And he, and he was kind of taken back, and he kind of smirked like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I've never asked to be on a, never have I asked to be on a brand until now. So fast forward, we're in San Francisco. I get the skate team together and say, hey guys, here's what's going on. You got Kareem Campbell, Danny Way, Bob Burnquist, all the guys. Tony wants a ride for us. And then you kind of see the, the eyes roll, the heads bod. And then, you know, in their mind, it's like, well, did, why are you asking us? You're going to do it. But I was reading the room well and, and people weren't hyped on it. It's like, Colin, Colin McKay, I can tell you're not stoked. What? He's like, well, you're going to do it anyway, so why are you asking? It's like, I'm, I want to know what you guys think. It's like, look, we're a small company, a small brand. If Tony comes and rides for us, everyone's going to assume that we paid him a shit ton of money. That's going to change the way people look at us. Right now, we have the Nixon skate team. You bring Tony on, it's going to be, oh, Nixon, they sponsor Tony Hawk and, sk- and some other skaters. So it was pretty clear while everyone respected Tony, people were protective of the team. And, um, and I remember Danny Way, like, you're just going to do it. He was really challenging me. And I said, I'm going to do what's, what's right for Nixon. If Tony Hawk comes to the company or not, it's not going to make or break us. What's important is that this team is a team. So I went back, took Tony to lunch, and I told him, I go, hey, look, here's, we're, we're not ready for it. Here's why. And, and he was great. He just, okay, can I still get some watches? <laughs> and what was amazing there is like every event after that, like I'd be walking, I was in X Games Philadelphia, walking through the lobby of the hotel where everyone in the industry, all the athletes were, and Tony's yelling at me across so everyone can hear hey chad i'm sending you my sponsor me tape i'm sending you you know don't forget and and the rest of the team was like whoa and i think actually that same event was his last competitive doubles and he won the event and at the time at the time we didn't sell shirts or anything the only way you got it is if you were on the team and Tony was doing a skate park tour with Colin and Bob. 
So I'd send stuff to Colin and Bob on the road. Well, fast forward, we're at the X Games. Tony wins. He takes off his sweaty shirt, probably a birdhouse shirt, and he goes up to the, ped- the podium and the pedestal in a Nixon shirt. And all the team managers and athletes are looking at me like, he's on the team? And I was like, no. He's, but, but he had the shirt, wearing it, not getting paid. Like Quicksilver is paying him a lot of money, and he's wearing our shirt. So you know he's going to get in trouble. It's on TV, everything. It wasn't long after that that Bob Burnquist said, hey, I think we need to have another vote. And everyone by that point had interacted with Tony enough, and they're like, hey, we got to put him on the team. And it's like, Tony, do you want to do this? And, yeah, he was on board. That's I love awesome. that. Now, there's another thing there that is is really important to, to kind of highlight, too. You know, like the, the team guys were the only guys to get certain things, too. So that's something, I don't know if you see it as much anymore, but, you know, Volcom would do it with the Volcom Stone, and, and Nixon, you know, you would see the only people that had Nixon stickers back in the day You'd see J.P. Walker's board. You'd see Jeremy Jones's board, you know, and they'd have the Nixon on there. You'd see Todd Richards' board. You know, it has the Nixon sticker, but you can't get the Nixon sticker. What's the philosophy behind that? You wanted, I mean, as an athlete, you're getting stuff all the time. And when everyone else has it, it makes it a little less special for you. And we wanted to keep it special. So even the regional, the, the, the flow riders, if you will, we broke it down. There was three colorways of stickers, you know, West Coast, Midwest, and East Coast. So if you're a surfer or a skateboarder, you're going to Tampa, you're a skateboarder, you go to Tampa Am, and you're going to see a kid with a blue Nixon icon. He's the East Coast. Orange one's a West Coast. So now what it's doing is you're realizing, okay, Nixon's so tight with their team. I, I don't know this other skater with the orange sticker, but I'm going to go talk to him because he's clearly down and we share something now. And that was such a great conduit to bring people together as well. And um, yeah, then what we started to do with the t-shirts is, is there started to be a demand for them because you couldn't buy them. So we went to each of the athletes and we made, um, we made, we made a shirt. We made the shirt that I'm wearing, which was, pretty simple with just the the word mark here with the icon on top but on the inside we put little special messages you could say anything you want and i'm going to make a hundred of them for you and i'm going to put them into a special bag with a postcard to tell the story and basically the story is hey this is a limited product it's numbered each one was numbered and Todd Richards, here's a hundred shirts and Todd would go on the road and maybe like throw like five or six in his bag and hand them out. And if you got a bag, you open it, you had the t-shirt and then the card, which told you, Hey, you can't buy this. This is the only way you can get this is from someone on the team. Now when JP or Jeremy, Kareem Campbell are going on the road, now like kids are saying, Hey, I want your Nixon t-shirt. They don't want their board, their boot, their shoot their I want your Nixon t-shirt. Your lowest paid sponsor, a shirt that they don't even sell, kids are like hassling you for it. And it just, it really resonated with the team that this is something that, wow, this is special. This is different. And then it wasn't too much longer after that that we started to then enter into soft goods, t-shirts, sweatshirts, Mm -hmm. 
but the sticker, we've never sold it. So fast forward to the modern era of technology today, you know, now people figure out how they can scan the logo, go down to their local sticker maker, and they can make their own. So they start popping up. But I mean, you got to go through that much work to get one. You deserve it. Were these all your marketing ideas? Or just yeah, as I, a team, you kind of just Yeah, I don't, I don't know this. if I necessarily came up with that yeah. as much as you just embrace it. Embrace from, oh, it. that's good. We should do, yes. Let's do yes. this as a team, yeah. Another yeah. thing Jer- awesome Jeremy ideas. brought up, too, he's like, we would get Nixon-branded iPods that were completely filled with music. And, like, the, the gifts, even, did you know that I was, uh, I was, like, on kind of Nixon Am for three years. Yeah, I wasn't sure if you knew that because I got a check. <laughs> I got a check for like three or four years for I think I don't five hundred bucks a month, yeah. and I never had to do a thing. I thought there was a glitch in accounting. I get you know the boxes <laughs> would show up, and you guys never. I just put the sticker on my board, and I'm like, does do these guys even know? Like I thought it was a glitch in accounting. To be honest with you, you're getting amazing. a check. You know, coming from the trans world, world, you knew how important athletes were, mm-hmm. and to as the brand was growing. You, you had more cabbage to invest back in, and that's where you want it to go. And we never wanted to be the brand that was telling you what to do or asking you. It's like, look, we're creating something, and hopefully we're creating something that people appreciate and want so much that they're going to go out of their way for it. And, I mean, back at that point, we were, and we were never set it up to be the, the biggest sponsor, but, man, if I could just pay for your gas money to get up the hill – and the rest, it, it's, you can focus and you could live off of your other sponsors mm-hmm. and we could just help pay just a little bit of those expenses and realizing how important that is for the progression of the sport to have athletes who can go out and do what they dream of doing every day and not have to go work in the restaurant at night or go scrub the pots and pans or whatever it is that everyone else is doing on the side mm-hmm. to make it so they can afford to go snowboard. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe... Maybe then if, if we were hooking up blue, he wouldn't have to go and, and work and, and clean, the, the, clean the hotel rooms at the end of the night and be a janitor, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and I think that, yeah, that, that's something that's incredible too because from, there's, there's even brands that, that paid significantly less that I've written for over the years that you got to do like three photo shoots a year and you got to do all these things and, and – and that was what was awesome is like you, you ride for you guys, you feel a part of this really exclusive thing and you got, you know that you got co-signed by JP Walker and Jeremy Jones. So you're like, damn, you're, it's pretty flattering. And then also the thing I remember getting those boxes, like the product is insane. It wasn't just the watches. Like you guys did headphones. accessories, headphones, mm-hmm. iPad covers, iPhone covers. You'd open up this box, like backpacks, clothing, and, and the clothing was like premium. You know, everything was premium, but... Yeah, you you know, just like the watches, at the very early stages, you had a decision to make. There's that fork in the road where, look, you can go to a watch factory and say, I like that case, I like that band, make it blue and put my logo on it. Or you take the other route where you design it, you build the CAD drawings, you take it to the factory, sample, sample, sample to get it right. Then you know that no other brand is going to have something the same way that ours is. Yeah, it's not a house mold, right? And so as you start to develop, now the crazy part is you start to develop into a t-shirt. You're like, oh, I can't just take a regular t-shirt and stamp our logo on it. We have to make our own. We have to cut and sew and do it. And, you know, maybe sometimes we went a little overboard. But at the end of the day, 
I would always say the number one marketing tool we have as a brand is incredible product. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how cool your team is or who's doing what. If your product's shit, the brand's going to be shit. And um, I'm thankful that we took the, the harder road and the harder route because it resonated with people. Well said. Now, a- another thing, I don't know if this is the point you wanted to make here, but you know, going back, if you were to to boil down, obviously Nixon's been massively successful. You guys have done really well for yourselves. What, you know, what are the the key key bullet point ingredients do you think to the company's success? Don't be a dick. <laughs> I mean, it's not rocket science. We're not we're not curing cancer. Right? We're having fun. Treat people with respect. Have some humility. humility. Um, be empathetic to what other people are going through in their lives. And just find your, find your lane. It's a, I think at times people try, they internalize it and they think what they're doing, because it's the most important thing in their life, it needs to be the most important thing in everyone else's life. And that's not the reality. You know, we recognized where we were in the food chain. If you're a snowboarder, your board sponsors first, and then maybe it's your outerwear sponsor, and then your boot sponsor. We're we're way we're like the parsley on the plate. We're not the steak and the potatoes. We're the parsley, but it better be really good parsley. And and that part, you know, our importance on the on the plate, so to speak, got more important because of our approach. And um, not trying to get too full of yourself. And as the success grows you got to keep yourself in check. And I think people like Jeremy and JP were really good at that and making sure that your head doesn't get full of ideas and you don't think that you're bigger than you are. So I value those relationships in many ways other than just growing the brand and the company, but also in my own personal development. You started that with don't be a dick back to the Patreon interview. You said in the boy scouts that uh, the advice you received was be nice to everybody. It's almost, the same, the same thing right there. That's pretty rad. Full circle. Yeah, I mean, I had a lot of stuff to learn, and I didn't come at, I didn't come into the sports as an athlete with this ability that was above and beyond anyone else. I, I was always humble, and always wanted to learn, and had a, just wanted to learn, learn, learn. Had an appetite for that, and um, I think other people saw that, and they said, you know what, he really does care. So you know what, I'll spend another ten minutes with you to try to illustrate the point I'm trying to make on whatever it was we were talking about, whether it was a new product, an event, or here's the new ad campaign. What do you think? Give me feedback. Let's go and create it. To the, the, everything we've done has always had that inclusion and that collaborative nature, and I think that's when we're at our best. You've also handpicked some of the baddest athletes that you could have gotten on the team, which I'm sure goes a long way. There's a couple that slid through that came in the door that wanted to ride. I mean, you can't have them all. But, you know, Sean White lived down the street. His mom came in the office more than once. <laughs> um, he, he, wanted, he looked up to those guys. And, you know, there's a discussion where it's like you, you, live, and, you live and die by those team discuss, discussions. And, hey, guys, what do you think? Sean White. They weren't having it. No way. And, you know, from a marketer's perspective, I'm sure there's a lot of people at Pepsi and Google and 
wherever else that are like, that guy's a kook. He passed on Sean White. He blew it. Did I? Sean and I are still friendly. And we didn't build our brand on his back, but we still had his respect. And that goes a long way. Because then when some other writer's asking Sean, he's going to tell them what he thinks. And if you're, not, if you're not a dick, he might say some good things about you. You, about the brand. You know what's cool? Like when I'm, when I, as I'm dissecting what you're saying, a couple things that I, I want to just footnote. You, you essentially talked about how you were like, you wanted to learn, you wanted to learn, you wanted to learn. And the takeaway for me is that, is that the ego's down. An openness to learn means I don't know everything. The ego says, oh, I already know. I already know the right thing. I don't need to learn. That's huge. And then the other thing, it's, you know, a lot of times you, you know, the, there's a lot of underlying tone is I went in there and I fucking worked harder than everybody else. And I, I out grinded everybody and I woke up at six and I fucking, you know, I just worked everybody under the table, right? That's, that's a lot of, and, and I like your entrepreneurial approach is like, don't be a dick. So I, I think like asking how important is the human relationship factor to the success of Nixon? I mean, I'm I'm here sitting behind the table with you guys today, getting a lot of um, attention and 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 love and respect for what was created. But to really, what's missing here is is Andy and the other seat here. That's the yin and the yang. I I can have the bleeding heart and spend all that time because he was stressing over the finance or how do I make that band a little bit thinner so it's going to be more comfortable when it curves on the wrist. He was stressing about the things that I wasn't. And he took, he took pride and he took, it, 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 made, it made it easier for him knowing that I was stressing just as hard as he was on the things that he didn't want to stress about. He didn't want to get the phone call at 3 o'clock in the morning when the athlete that you just sent to Spain got thrown into jail for attempted murder. He didn't lose sleep over that the way I did. But I didn't lose sleep when, you know, something went awry at the factory and he's up at 3 a.m. talking slowly, making sure they understand every word to get our point across to make that product that much better. That, that really happened in Spain? Was that in the skate side or something? That was in the surf side. Surf we would side. do an event. like So we had our jib fest in snow. In surf, we did something called the the surf challenge in San Sebastian, Spain done it for about six or seven years. It was, um, it was actually with the first year I didn't go where I'd sent the team manager down with some, uh, North American athletes, California kids meet up with some of the European and Australians down there to have a jib fest, like rider run rider judged surf event where we'd stay in the same place and have great meals in this experiential and, um, you know, there's some hotheads all over the world, but there was a hothead in one of the locals in Spain had chirped off to one of the California kids and the California kid just cold cocked him, mm. knocked him down. Our crew left. Well, that kid died later that night. Oh, wow. And that kid's friend was like, it's the Americans. They're staying at the hostel. And the cops show up and they grab the kid and take him to jail. And that was on a Friday. So I get the call, and it's like, hey, such and such got thrown into jail. Okay, I mean, we've all, there's been a lot of athletes in action sports that have 
put some time in. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, what did he do? Oh, he's, it's for attempted murder. And that's a game changer in anyone's book. So then luckily at that time, we were just under the, it, we were under the Billabong umbrella. So they had acquired us. So now you have a global organization with resources beyond what we had. So I had someone I could call. And they had their lawyer in Europe that they could get to go down there and represent this kid. And comes to find out it wasn't our athlete that did the damage. By Sunday, Monday, when it was time for court, the police had actually acknowledged, well, actually we figured out that that kid was arrested later that night and he was roughed up pretty bad by the police. Oh, wow. And, that, and the police acknowledged it. And our athlete was released, and after his three days in jail, he scooted back to California, and we called it a day. Kid probably never went back to Spain. Probably not. (laughs) All right, we've been cruising right along. We almost missed a favorite. Buds, what's that? Name that video part. Name that video part is presented by the Icon Pass, huh, Buds? Yeah, it all starts now. Icon Pass is on sale for the 22-23 season. It's time to keep the stoke alive, seek a season of fun in the mountains, and do you across 50 of the best ski destinations in the world. The Icon Pass family welcomes three new legendary destinations to its family of mountains. Chamonix, Sun Valley, and Snow Basin here in Utah. Additionally, new pass options have been added to the mix. Starting at only 249 adult, the Icon Pass Session 2-Day and the Icon Pass Session 3-Day offer a range of affordable entry points, furthering the flexibility and availability for riders of all means and styles to experience this family of unique worldwide destinations. Score the best prices on winter 22-23 and get all the early season goods. Upon purchase, buy now, ride now, with immediate spring access to three mountains and a total of 10 destinations by April 11th. Save up to $200 in child passes with the purchase of an adult pass. 21, 22 pass holders can claim up to $100 off and renewal discounts for 22, 23. And pay it all forward with a payment plan as low as zero down and 0% APR. If you're interested in getting an Icon Pass, head on over to IconPass.com. Well, Chad, since you're a founder, uh, you don't have quite as much pressure on you as, say, a rider. So uh, what's your confidence level 0 through 10 on Name That Video Part? Guys, I've been thinking about this a lot since I've been asked to come in here. And, and I was excited the other day, screaming in my car when I was listening to Blue Montgomery and I got it right. Ooh. Nobody was in my car. It was just me. So there's no proof of this. <laughs> HHH? Hard HHS, homeless, yes. Yeah. And I was really bummed because that's the one movie I knew pretty well. And you guys used it on him. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so my confidence, um, I'm going to say my confidence is at a two. Okay. But in my head, no matter what movie it is, I'm just going to tell you my favorite movie. <laughs> All right, here we go. Volcom Garden. No. Is that your favorite movie? <laughs> <laughs> it's up there pretty high. You know, you are, uh, you're a big part of this movie. It wasn't from the documentary, was it? Yes, it was. 
all this talk about the gym fest. Uh, yeah, even with the name that video part. And, and we only had one band that played the whole soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? So you could have. Yeah, so that would have been good. Well, uh, you get a participation award mm-hmm. here. It's not, uh, you didn't win this, just so you know. You did, you did but not I'm win still this. a winner. Yeah, you're still a winner. You got a bomb hole uh, bag full of some bomb hole merch. What did you put in there, buds? So you what? got bomb hole yeah, mug. What, what you we got, got in here is that. You got yeah, big burgundy cap right there. You got a. The, this is amazing. The staple hoodie. We got some drapling patches, uh, sticker packs. All of that is available at bombhole.com. So for part two of Name That Video part, we we always give it away to the, the listeners. So basically, if you get this one right, uh, if you're tuned in, then you get a prize pack. The way we judge is on the thumbnail photo of Chad on Instagram. That's where we pick our winner. So if you know what song it is, comment on there. First one to comment gets a prize pack. Here we go. Great video part. Thank you guys for playing. Name that video part. All right, we're going to get into the pub beer crapshoot. What are you cracking there, buds? Delicious pub beer right here. I'll tell you what. What's their motto? Cheap fun beer. It is indeed. They support the show. You should support them. Uh, if you're thinking about going out and having one or two beers or 40. Or 12. Or 12. Or 40. What should you get, buds? Let's get some pub beer in you. There it is. So uh, for the pub beer crapshoot, Chad, what do we do, buds? We're going to roll two dice. You roll those dice. The Goon Gear logo is a six, and uh, we'll tell you what what you have to do. Ready, gentlemen? We're ready. Three. 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 What would your house party entrance theme song be? Too short. Come to party. Wow. Wow. Too short. <laughs> Respect. I think you're, the street cred just went yeah, up. Street, street, street cred, cred just, just went, went through, through the, the roof, roof yeah. right there. That's a great party song, yeah. really. All right, this this gentleman that has a guest question, his name's been coming up a lot in the show, Chris Gunny Gunnerson. He started SPT, Snow Park Technologies, uh, and he's a legend in the game. He's got a question for you. Here we go. Bromhole, Gunny here. I understand you have one of my favorite people in the world, Chad Denena, in the studio today. Chad is one of my longest time, closest friends, and he's also one of the most thoughtful people I know who has this uncanny ability to connect interesting people together to do amazing things. So my question for Chad is, give us a highlight or two of some of your favorite projects where you've been able to collaborate, aggregate people to come together to make an interesting project or an amazing outcome. There's so many. I don't know how you're going to pick one. Let's hear what you got. Love Chris Gunnerson. Um, Okay, you know I'm I'm the guy where I like to tell the team writers, hey, I got a lot of time and a lot of interest in helping you. So give me the things that are just out there, their wishes, their dreams, that maybe I can make happen for you. I got a random one a few years ago from now two-time world champion surfer John John Florence. He was working on a film, and he had a a major A-lister celebrity who was going to narrate the film drop out last minute and of course i get the call like chad could you in any way find john c Riley? 
And right away I was like, oh, I'm a f- one friend away. I got a good friend of mine. I can name drop, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mike Diamond from the Beasties is good friends with John C. Riley. So I called Mrs. Diamond and said, hey, there's this idea. And there's a surfer and this opportunity. And she reached out to John and John emailed me right away. And he has a 16-year-old son who surfs and he was ecstatic to do it. So fast forward, it's uh, winter time on the North Shore, which is when the waves are big and the, and the comps are going. And John C. Riley had formed a friendship with John Florence and got a house on the beach right next to him. And that winter, John C. Riley was all over with the team and at restaurants. And there was a, a relationship that was forged through that. And John narrated the film for John. And it was cool. It was one of those little things where you can make dreams happen. You know, another good fun one was probably at a photo shoot when we were working with Most Def, Yasin Bey, Dante Smith. Take your, take your pick. <laughs> uh, great guy, but then to have JP and Jeremy or Kareem <clears throat> Campbell on the skate side of things walk into the photo shoot room and see Most Def right there. Or bringing, you know, at the time, which more familiar in the surf world or in the snow world, Santi Gold. To, to bridge those relationships is a really fun thing to do. And, and not putting yourself in the middle, but really just being on the outside, putting those two people together and seeing what kind of magic can come when two creative people come together with, from different worlds who have respect for each other. That's, I, I love those moments. They're a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Well, another thing, as you're talking about that, I was kind of thinking about is that you guys have your, your roots in action sports. You, you're, you stem from skate, snow, surf, and you've always stayed true to skate, snow, surf. But as you get bigger, it seems like it can get enticing to maybe go, oh, I'll get into Hollywood or you know, go, you know, there's more famous people than action sports, but you always kind of stayed rooted in that. How was that by design? I think part of it is just because it's your own personal interests and um, the relationships that you're building, the crew that you're hanging with. You know, I tend to hang with more snowboarders than, say, um, mountain climbers or skiers. Now, mad respect for the skiers and mountain climbers out there. And when our team would, you know, we might have an athlete that's also really good friends with a world champion skier who really loves the brand, then those relationships are made. But it is so much around that network of of team and athletes. And as your interests grow, as you get more worldly in your um, experiences and the people that you meet, your, your influence, your sphere of influence grows and you want to bring those into the brand. So it's just finding the right way to do it because if you all of a sudden go after Cristiano Ronaldo and throw him on the team, if the rest of the team isn't embracing it or interested, then it's just this weird outlier. I mean, it would be awesome, and if Cristiano Ronaldo is listening, we'd love to have a conversation. (laughs) But that said... It's got to be natural. And, and so at times you could probably say, well, maybe that's been limiting to the brand because there's watch wearers everywhere. And it doesn't have to be, 
your entry into the brand doesn't have to come just through snowboarding, just through skateboarding. And, and I'd criticize myself in my development that maybe I was a little slow at that at expanding out to the bigger brands. But you're one person. You only have so many hours in the day. And um, I really feed off of those relationships from the team and the, and the employees and their relationships. Um, you know, one of those that just pop into mind is, hey, here's, a, here's an employee, he's a new kid, he's really excited about the brand, and, you know, they know people too. Well, then next week, all of a sudden, it was the NBA Finals. Aaron Rodgers, the football quarterback, is sitting front row to the basketball game wearing a Nixon hat because he's friends with the other employee at the, at the brand. And he likes that employee, and he wanted to support that employee. And he rocks, you know, and then everyone in the world sees that and how that influences and how people get excited or turned off from the brand. It's always, you know, it's always a soundboard. And there's lots of knobs, and you're turning the right ones to see what gets people excited and where people can connect. But I think I've been maybe a little too protective of the brand in that regard. And maybe we've been slower to evolve in some places, but it, I think it also resonates why people still care so much about us today is because we have been that protective. Smart. Yeah, I think that's important in the longevity, right? Yeah, Go to ahead. bring someone on that the rest of the team doesn't respect, can, it, it can really alienate people on the brand and what they want to do next. Yeah, one wrong move makes somebody maybe just not want to be a part of something, too. That can happen as well, uh, especially when you're dealing with uh, professionals in action sports that are gigantic prima donnas and uh, <laughs> have been spoiled their entire life. Yes. So, uh, but another thing I'd, I want to touch on, too, is with, with Nixon, like just in fact of branding and take like your ads and the photography used in your ads, it's always been just hyper clean hyper impactful, just just very, very well laid out, your your ads and everything like that. And um, how much importance and, and what are your, you know, do you guys have like strict brand guidelines? Like how did you guys come up with that formula? Well, I, I mean, I well, you know, get that air horn ready because, you know, the Cinco crew and Aaron Draplin, who I know has been on the show before, I'm, I'm not a designer. I can't design my way out of a paper bag. And just, as, just the same way that I sat and I listened to the team writers and we listened to the team on what they want, like listen to the people that, that know. Uh, the Cinco crew, when Andy and I were starting, a group of designers that Andy had a history with back in his Burton days who, had, who were working with him on boards, were getting ready to start their fledgling design firm out in Portland. And we connected with them and said, hey, we want to work with you Help us build this brand. We recognize that if you look at a snow mag at the time, you can pretty much open any issue and you're going to see a photo of Todd Richards or Dave or Shannon and Tina riding. Riding with their beanie, their goggles, and their face mask up to here. Kids could be ultra mega fans of snowboarding and Jeremy Jones, but then be at a grocery store and walk down the aisle next to him and not even know it's him because they don't recognize the athletes. So we really took an approach where it's like, look, the first 10 years, first 15 years, no action. 
Like, I want to take your goggles and your beanie off and show people your face. I, and because that brings value to you as an athlete in growing your persona and your reputation. And the, the athletes appreciated that. Now, elevating the design, it was all about design. The same way that we sat down and designed, custom designed the watches, it was the same approach to the ads. And it was also like, hey, we have this idea. Team, what do you think? And I'm, we're putting them in situations that aren't normal. It's, it's easy to say, hey, you're on the snow. There's the hill. There's the rail. Hit it. I'll take the photo. Here we go. But working with world-class athletes with a background from the media, I had so many relationships, as did the athletes, on the best photographers. So you wanted to work with them. And then to help them elevate their work and take it off the hill and the action and focus more on like a lifestyle design point of view, really, it, it just worked for everyone. It elevated, it gave something more to the, to the photographers, it gave something more to the athletes, and it really resonated, it worked. It stood out, we got attention for it, and it's, that, was, that was a lot of fun, is that time in design and really having an influence that inspired other brands was you know, something that we didn't go out trying to accomplish, but it was nice to see that people appreciated the time and the effort and the thought we put into those creative pieces. Mm -hmm. I remember flipping through the magazines. You see, you know, all these ads have the same formula, action photo, you know, maybe product in the corner. And then there's just a, an extremely clean portrait with some very clean branding. And you're like, this guy, you know. Yeah, it really stood out. It stood out. Yeah. It was great. Jumped out of the page, something different. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to attribute that as much to the, the Cinco and the design crew as like Thomas Campbell, who did a lot of our early photography. Just working with those photographers who, that got us, that got the athletes and put in the time to do something a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Well said. Um, well, we, this is a time in the show where we're going to get to hot takes. Um, you know, hot takes is presented by Oakley. I run the Oakley Line Miners. They're clean. Talk about clean branding. That's a clean goggle. Clean looking goggle you've been wearing. Great looking goggle. Uh, I also run the Mod 5 helmet. That's uh, recently started wearing a helmet when I ride park. Uh, protect the old dome ski so I can uh, try to articulate sentences on air and I don't become just a completely <laughs> hollow-headed. I've noticed a difference. <laughs> <laughs> what are those glasses you've been rocking? They look fast. Oh, yeah. They, they got a whole gamut. Uh, glasses. Uh, I actually don't know the name of them, bud. So oh, this is not. They a good, are dope. They're, they're good-looking <laughs> glasses. I'll tell you that. Um, so that being said, we always like to start this thing off with uh, the MJ of snowboarding and or goat of snowboarding, uh, both male and female. Who you got? I could spend a lot of time breaking down your criteria, and believe me, my friends and I have. But in the sake of time and effort. When I think of the MJ in my world, there, it's, I'm really focused on competition. He was a performer, and while he had an incredible influence on the sport of basketball and the culture of basketball, I think he's most known for his ability to win under pressure. And as much as I continue to think about that, there's, there's really not a person that comes to mind more than Sean White. I can't say he's my favorite snowboarder. He's a great guy. But when his back's against the wall, he can perform. And he can rise to the occasion. 
and for that reason, I, I look at, I look at Sean for the, the men's on the side of things for, for the women. I mean, you know, this one for the goat and MJ, it might cross over. Um, I, I think Jamie Anderson's done a lot. Again, another person where I don't, I don't know her personally. I can't speak to her personality, but to see the influence that she's had on the sport for women and her ability to, to take it in, into, on the course or in the, in the back, in the hills. I think she's done a really good job of that. And, and so I'll give props to her and also another female rider that's done a lot in my eyes who maybe doesn't get all the attention that she deserves is Elena Height. I mean, incredible personality, someone I did have the opportunity to meet and know as a human off the board as well as on the board. And what she did in pipe and then to transcend into her backcountry adventures, it's, I have a lot of respect for her. And she always does it with a smile. And she's just, she's amazing. The goat for snowboarding has been really difficult because for the time that we've had snowboarding, I can, I can look at decades and really pull a person out. But to find someone that transcends all those decades, I don't know if, if I've landed on a single person uh, the two that continually get in our conversations are Craig Kelly and, and Terry Hawkinson. I think they've both influenced the sport beyond just competition. And um, they've, they did it for a longer period of time. There's people that had some pretty high peaks in a short amount of time, really made an influence, but then they kind of disappeared a little bit. And I think that those two have had an influence on the sport that's still being felt today. Great, great, well-articulated answer. Uh, next question we have is, who's the most underrated? Not an athlete I know personally, uh, which I obviously put a lot of criteria into in making my selections, but someone that's been under the, the microscope a little bit that I've looked at is Arthur Longo. I mean doesn't get the attention that he deserves, spends a lot of his time in Europe, but what a well-rounded individual that can handle himself with style and grace and isn't the most popular name out there. I think, I think that's definitely one that people should look into. So that's a great answer. Yeah. Uh, if you could go heliboarding with three people in the world just for fun, primetime conditions, who's going in the heli with you? I got to have Andy. Because just because he's my brother in crime. And he's the first person that after I get off the heli, I'd want to run and tell. So to have him there would be great. Um, as far as athletes, uh, Dave Downing, as I mentioned, the first athlete on Nixon, who's, you know, he's the guy that you're going to have there that's not going to leave you behind. He's going to make sure that you're just as prepared for the situation you're getting into as you should be. And then... Um, you know, one other person, and this one's kind of random, and I didn't know that I'd really pick this, but a fun guy who, and times when it's so stressful, because I'm thinking of heli riding, I'm thinking Alaska, right? I'm not thinking like fun backcountry. I'm thinking stressful, big consequences if you make mistakes. And uh, I think KJ is someone that I'd like to have wow. next to me. like that one. Yeah. 
That's a great answer. Now, this is a this is an off-the-cuff uh, hot take that I'd like to throw out there. Who is the GOAT as far as a founder? Who would you say the the GOAT is that you, or somebody you look up to as a founder? I mean, maybe it's just because he was just giving us a question there and we talked off-air about him. Ken Block. I mean, he didn't just do it once. It wasn't yeah. one and done. I mean, from his time with in media with Blunt to DC, you know, to drawers, to then leaving that behind and recreating this whole through his, his own desire and, and interest in, in rally racing and everything he does. He's just a quality human. He's thoughtful. He just doesn't jump into it. He plans his path and he's thoughtful and he's been extremely successful and I have a lot of admiration for him. I think another one who I don't know quite as well, but was had an impact on me in the early in the early days when I was at Transworld before starting Nixon, and then was opinionated in how I started Nixon. Um, Rich Novak, who started Santa Cruz, and Joel Gomez, who started Sessions. Those two, for different reasons. Um, you know, Rich is a person where it really taught me the value of, of the team and not just having them, but like your impact on the team. He made a lot of young kids wealthy. And he, re, he being Rich Novak, as he told me, he, it, was, it was a challenge for him when you're giving young people money and not helping them make smart decisions with that. Seeing them make bad decisions and not intervening earlier. Um, that, was, that was something that Rich had shared with me that maybe was something that he wished he had done differently that I applied into our thinking. And we didn't have quite the same impact on an athlete's income like he did. But still, there were moments where I could take the lessons learned from Rich and things that Joel had shared with me um, in, in the employees that we bring into the business that I just have always gone back to and have always resonated with me. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yeah, that's uh, you just nailed it on yeah. that answer. Um, so we're, we're, getting, uh, we're getting pretty close to having to wrap this thing up here in a minute. But earlier you were talking about um, when, you were, when you were selling um, Nixon and they were sliding numbers across the table just out of curiosity. Chatter biscuits. I just want to know what that piece of paper said. Oh, wow. Well, okay, it's it's public knowledge, so it's okay. There's no secrets here, so go do your homework, kids. But, I mean, at that, at that stage, I don't, even, I don't remember what the number, and I'm not going to dodge this, but I just remember I had a number, and that eclipsed it. Now, the way it worked out, it was very advantageous for us all. And... um yeah, I mean, it was it was a lot of money, and it changed my life, and it changed a lot of people's lives within um, our group of of team and friends. That was impactful for my life, and it's it's allowed me to provide for my family and my friends and do things that I never thought I was going to be able to do. But it's yeah, that was amazing. Should I just say the number? Go for it. Purchased in December 2006, Nixon was acquired by Billabong International for approximately $55 million and deferred payment of approximately $76 million. 
Is that right on? Spot on? Yeah, it was, it was, um, it was actually the second number first, and then there was an earn out past that. Wow, that, that's incredible. It, it was. And, and, you know, here's a good part of that story is when you're going and you're starting the brand and you're telling people what you want to do, uh, their interest is to invest in you to, so you can take a little bit and make it a lot. And uh, my roommate at the time, one of my best friends who I worked with at Transworld, he was in a point in his life where he lost a parent. And while they were certainly not people with a lot of money, it's, you know, a time when your parent passed, he was given a small stack of money. And, and I needed money to put in to help support Andy at that same time because he, he was coming down from school. So I needed to borrow money from my friend, then say, hey, do you also want to invest? Like, thanks for letting me the money to start my company, but do you want to invest? And for your best friend to give you a little bit, and for you to then pass a check across the table that's significantly larger than that, that's, that's a feel-good moment. And it fully exceeded his expectations, I imagine. Absol- to like, I think it exceeded crazy, all of our expectations. Yeah, to a crazy amount. That's, congratulations. And, and while we're on the topic of money, which is not always a popular conversation for the, the business people in the brands, I will say that when we did this, we recognized those early athletes that were part of the brand and the early employees. And when it came down to it, everybody got a little bit. And, and there was, you know, people who had been with us for seven years or literally someone that had been there three weeks. Now the amounts they got were different, but everybody got broke off. And it's one thing to have a moment in, in your business life where you have an activity like that, where you can win. And that is an amazing experience. I hope as many people that want to experience it can, but you know, it's even better sharing it with your friends and to have that moment where everyone got to win, where those employees didn't expect that, but got it. That, that just, fortified us that much more for, for all the hard work that was yet to come that we had to go through. It really shows people where, where your heart and your head is at. And I've seen a lot of brands become quite successful, but not share it in that same way. And I'd encourage anyone that's starting their new brand to just recognize the people that were there at the beginning, no matter how small or big their impact was, their influence, share the wealth. Yeah, I wish more people did that. It seems like it's a pretty rare thing, right? Yeah, I mean, again, and, and I, when I say this, I'm saying this to you guys. Yeah. Right? This is episode 90... Nine. 99. 99. 99. Yeah. So when you guys sell, just think of all those 100 people that sat in the seat and you just break off a little bit for each of them. <laughs> you can leave me out of it. I'm okay. You can I'm leave Ken, okay. Ken Block. He can be left out. <laughs> But Ken yeah. Block will probably sell like three more companies by then. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, sharing those moments and those are, you know, the great times and those are the ones that they do stand out just as much as the the hardest moments and the setbacks that you have. It makes it all worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Great, great advice. A uh, couple, couple other footnotes here. You know, you just got to experience something that most people don't experience uh, over in Wyoming. 
Why don't you tell the people what you're doing over there? Montana? Oh, sorry, Montana. Montana. Yeah. I thought it was in Wyoming. It was totally off. Well, you know the rule about Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. <laughs> well, it's one of those scenarios. I almost went there on a photo thing once. I encourage you to go the Bomber, there. I didn't go. <laughs> so what we're talking about here is the, the YC, the Yellowstone Club, which is, I mean, for all, for all the purposes, yes. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe two of those. Um, for, look, it's a country club focused on snowboarding, skiing, and outdoor. I mean, of course, there's mountain biking in the summertime, and, but it, it's an incredible experience. It's a, it's a private place that is a great mountain right next to Big Sky. And um, through, through the success of the brand, my partner was able to get a, the smallest place, smallest freestanding place on the YC, and um, it's it's just magical. He's he loves being in the mountains, and he loves snowboarding. And he loves snowboarding more than anything. So to see the joy that he gets out of sharing that with his friends, and it's it's one of those things. People say like, "Oh, you should get a place in the YC." And it's like I do. It's my friend's place. <laughs> <laughs> so get a friend. If but it's not what, you, then have a friend. What specifically makes it different? Because you say it's magical, but I don't. I have no glimpse into what makes it great. So I mean, it, first off, it's limited. You can't go there if you're not an owner. Okay. Right. And the idea that I mean, in proximity, Big Sky is right there. Like you could you could slide into Big Sky or slide down into Yellowstone from where we stay, and. You could be at Big Sky, and maybe the snow is up to, you know, just the, the bottom of your boot, just above board line. You go to the YC, and it's up to your shin. It's less people. It's literally a place when you're riding, you're like, whoa, there's two other people snowboarding. There's just not a lot of people there. So on a powder day, it doesn't get tracked out at all? No. No, it's incredible. That's that's actually all yeah. I needed to hear. There. That's nice. So chairlift runs that don't get tracked out is what you're telling me. It's an, and then it, it feels like the early days where you see other snowboarders and you're excited. Like you're hooting at total strangers that are going through because it's only, you know how special this experience is. And to be able to, you just know how stoked they are down there and you're up there and you just want to share that with somebody. It's like the early days of surfing where you just paddle out and the fact that someone else is in the water, <laughs> not like today where there's tons of I guess of that people. is a rare thing these days. Huh? <laughs> What's going on at the lodge? We got, we talking good food? Is it? Oh, incredible food. And, and there's, so one of the things that stands out to me is the comfort stations, right? So you're, you're going down the hill snowboarding and there's a little shack on the side of the, of the run. And they have these things, maybe three or four of them on the, on the mountain. And you go into a shack, it's no bigger than the room that we're in now, which is large. I'm not saying that this is small. This is big <laughs> it's time. a nice room. This is a nice this room, is a big time here. Take it easy on the room here, Chad. <laughs> but um, you go in there, and you have one wall that's like every natural food snack you could think of. And then maybe you have like some hot soups or chilies. Damn. And then the other wall, it's like every candy you could think of. It's making me hungry. Oh, wow. It's making and me hungry. <laughs> 
This is all on Hill. And it's the big bars. It's not the little individuals. You're getting the big <laughs> full candy size? bars. Full they got full size. size. <laughs> and it's free. You just take it off the wall. And it's embarrassing, right? I'm a grown man. And I walk out of the comfort station and my pockets are yeah, exactly. crammed full of gummy bears. <laughs> I would do that. No, I mean the comfort station, the way that they, everyone's really just They got nerd ropes. Fun. They got nerd ropes. They do. Yes, oh they do. God. And uh, see one of these damn comfort stations. Yeah, it, it's just a quality place where they take care of you. And and I tell people, if you're if you're a young snowboarder skier, don't go there when you're young, because it'll ruin your experience on any hill you go to. It's um, I mean, there's no lift tickets. It's everything. It's as you could imagine at the highest level of of just taking care of your experience and and someone thinking through. From arriving to leaving and everything in between, the meals, the pro shop, the equipment, the people—it's quality. Wow. I love it. Well, we gotta we gotta uh, start to wrap this thing up because uh, you're gonna miss your flight if mm-hmm. we don't. Um, now we like to ask everybody, even founders like yourself, what's your setup? What are you riding? So what am I riding today? So two boards. I left up at Andy's house my powder wrench, which is a great board. Love that. And then this Who tri- makes the powder wrench? Powder wrench is Burton. It's a Burton board. I've, you know, my transition from boards have gone from the, my Fat Bob days into I had quite a lot of years at, at, um, on a joyride. And then tr- I made that transition into my Burton experience. And this trip, I rode a 58 flight attendant. And that was, it was just fun, great, all around. Also a Burton board? Also a Burton board. All right, we're about to uh, wrap this thing up and put a friggin' bow on it, but you want to? You have anything else you want to throw out before we uh, get this thing over with? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I could go back to the, the thinking everyone at Circle and H2O to my time at Transworld, uh, Larry Balma, Brian Selstrom. But, you know, you look at my Nixon experience with Andy, and he's, I have a brother, and he's the closest thing to another brother that I have. He's, in, he's impacted my life and made me a better person, and I'd love to give him the biggest air horn possible on that. The super air horn. And there's so many athletes and industry members who have supported me in one way or another, but really when I think about this time and this time in snowboarding where media has kind of collapsed and gone away, and especially in these last two years, um, which for people in the future, we've had this pandemic that we've all been locked up in our homes for, for a long time. Um, events went away. Industry trade shows went away. All those opportunities to bring community together and grow the sport has, has shrunk. And through that exact same time comes the bomb hole. And you guys are, are building our community back up. You're giving a platform for the athletes, the photographers and filmers, the industry members to reconnect. And you're giving the athletes an, a platform to talk about things that inspire them and are making everything that we're doing worthwhile and of interest. And I would be remiss and the industry would be remiss if they didn't recognize the contributions of the bomb hole. And with no official 
title or affiliation, I felt that you guys should be recognized for the efforts that you've done in doing so. <laughs> so for excellence in oh, snowboarding, shit. for Ethan and Chris. Thank oh, my you. God. You, oh yeah, yeah, this one's easy. Here, this one's easy. Oh, sorry, sorry. Hey, what? Dude, what do we got here? Oh, my God. I feel like this won an Emmy right here. Yeah, this is this unbelievable. Is- <laughs> You guys have Look done at that snowboarding. <laughs> the guy snowboarding. He's you guys slashing. have done so much for the sport and for the industry. Dude. And time will will tell. But in this period of time that we're in right now, it needs to be recognized. Dude, that is the kindest gift anybody has ever brought yeah, to us, Chad. Coolest thing. Thank I've you ever so got. much. I feel that makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside right there. Feel blessed. Thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate the kind words, and I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been incredible. I feel like I learned so much. I want to say thank you to all of our listeners, all of our Patreon members, all of our sponsors. We really, really appreciate you guys. You guys are our community, our family. And we got another episode coming at you next Wednesday. Over and out from the bomb hole. All right, what a great conversation with Mr. Chad Denena. That was a real pleasure. Before we wrap this thing up, we got a couple things we want to talk about, right, buds? Yes, we do. Let's talk about the merch. We got Bombhole Racing Red hoodies in. As always, we got the staple hoodie. Always going to be available for you on the site. We got a new black and yellow corduroy hat. We got Bombhole Cup merch. All sorts of stuff at bombhole.com. Get it while it's in stock. A couple other things. Uh, Bombhole Cup, April 2nd and 3rd. Come up there and hang out. We're trying to make it a community gathering, so don't miss Bombhole Cup. And lastly, our Patreon. If you want to support the show, one thing that's really cool about our show, first of all, huge thank to our sponsors because they help us do this thing. But the Patreon is awesome because we're a podcast that's also funded by the people. And the less sponsors we have, the more we can say whatever the hell we want. It's it's free media. We can we can talk shit on anybody we want or any brand. We're not limited as to what we can say because we're funded by you guys. So if you're already a Patreon member, thank you so much. If you're interested in signing up, head on over to bombhole.com. You'll find a link on our website. With that being said, you guys have a great rest of your week. We'll have another episode coming at you next Wednesday, as always. Bombhole.